Good morning, everybody. Can you all hear me at the back? Excellent, excellent. Good morning and welcome to the 2022 Retin UK Professionals Conference. Uh, my name is Matthew Carr. I'm going to be one of your hosts for the day. It's absolutely amazing to have you all join us, both in the room and online, our first hybrid conference. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here with us today. So I just need to cover a few housekeeping items um, which may apply to some of you in the room, may apply to some of you at home, um, but not necessarily all of the cases. So we have no planned fire alarm for today. If you do hear a high-pitched squeak, uh, squeak, squeal even, um, please leave the room in an orderly fashion. If you are at the back of the room, leave the two doors at the back. If you're towards the front of the room, the door to my right. Staff will lead you outside and the muster point is um, outside Lloyds Bank on New Street. Uh, we have a photographer with us today. Kelly, where are you? Hello, Kelly. Uh, so Kelly will be wandering around taking snaps of your smiling faces. Um, if you'd rather not have your photograph taken today, um, can I have a show of hands if anybody doesn't want their photo taken? I'm visually impaired, so I can't see any hands. So that's fantastic. Um, <laughs> But just let Kelly know um, if you don't want your photo taken. Um, and of course, you can change your mind throughout the day. Um, okay, so if anybody needs to use the toilet today, especially if you're here, um, in the reception area, to the left-hand side is the disabled toilets. Upstairs are the males, and downstairs are the female toilets. Just ask a member of staff or one of the volunteers who will point you in the right direction. Refreshments are served in the exhibition space, which is the room next door to us. Um, so they'll be available um, at the breaks as we go throughout the day. But please do take some time to go and visit the exhibitors who are with us today as well. There is complimentary Wi-Fi if you're here with us today. Um, the network is called McDonald's Guest Wi-Fi. It's free to sign up. Um, there's no password required. Please flood your social media um, throughout the conference with our hashtag, which is hashtag RetinaUKProfs. Um, so let all of your friends and colleagues know where you are today. So we welcome your questions throughout the day. Um, there are different ways that you can ask your questions. If you're here with us in the room, um, in your delegate bags, you will have some cards. Write your questions on those and go and see one of our question masters who are at the back of the room, uh, Jane or Kate. And if you're at home joining us on Zoom, we have enabled the Q&A section. Um, so please leave your questions in there rather than in the chat section, please. Um, and also you can ask, ask questions throughout the day. If we're not able to get to your questions today, we will follow up on them afterwards. So we're really, really excited this year. This is the first year we've been able to offer CPD points. Um, it's taken a huge amount of effort to get to this position, but they are on offer to anybody who is with us for the entire day. If you are joining us online, please can you make sure your Zoom name reflects who you are, otherwise we're not going to know where to send your certificates to. Um, and please bear in mind, it can take up to a month for those certificates to be processed. Um, if you've got any questions about that, you can email services at retinauk.org.uk. So we are joined today by Mary and Jackie, um, who are our um, British Sign Language interpreters, so they'll be signing throughout the day for us. For those who are in the room, if you are asking questions, can you please keep it nice and clear and concise so that um, everybody can understand what those questions are. 
And finally, I would just like to say a huge, huge thank you to all of the staff team and the volunteers at Retina UK who have made today possible. It has been an immense amount of work for us to get here. Um, in fact, can you all give them a round of applause? They have done a fantastic job up until today. So without that team, this would not have been possible. So thank you again. Um, enjoy, keep smiling. And I would now like to introduce to the stage our CEO, who should be at the side of the stage with me now. Can we give her a moment? Building up the suspense for the lead into today. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, our CEO, Tina Garvey. Thank you, Matt. The air conditioning got the better of me and I needed a tissue. I thought you would prefer if you had a little weight without my nose running while I talk to you. Thanks, Matt. Um, as Matt says, we are absolutely delighted to be doing our first hybrid event. And our last face-to-face -face conference was way back in 2019. And I think just to echo what Matt said, to say that we're a little bit rusty, I think the team have done an amazing job. And uh, I am the luckiest chief executive in my sector, without a doubt. My staff team, the volunteers that support us, the people that come to our events are all absolutely A1. And for that, I'm intensely grateful. I'm also very grateful for everybody who's joined us today, whether you have by some way miracle got rail travel to work or through Wi-Fi, which we've all become so dependent on. I'm extremely grateful for all of you to come today. Um, I think there's also a group of people that I would like to thank that without their financial support um, ongoing through COVID and obviously to help us put on this show today. And um, so a very special thanks, and thanks sorry, to Janssen Novartis, Procure, Santen and AGTC. We just can't do this without sponsors who help us fund it. Um, so I'm extremely, extremely grateful to them. Um, and as all you all know, we don't make a charge for your attendance at these conferences today, and nor would we ever want to. Our events are to be open and accessible to absolutely everybody. But we are a charity that receives no government funding. So if you or your organisations can support us, we would be extremely grateful. We have a really friendly team out in the exhibition centre, so if you'd like to go and speak to them, visit our website, and in your little bags, there is a little envelope if you could support us. We'd be extremely grateful, and it is down to these voluntary contributions that we can do all of the fantastic job that our staff and volunteers do. And many of you do know us, and Retina UK is an extremely unique charity. And that's not just because we are the only organisation in the UK that funds research and supports the IRD community exclusively, but because of where we've come from and what we stand for. 46 years ago, a lady called Linda Cantor started something for a group of people where previously there was absolutely nothing apart from a well-wish, a diagnosis, and more often than not, an advice of go home and prepare for blindness. And she decided to change that and change it she did. And it's still that same ethos, sorry, of togetherness, supporting each other and the charity being right at the centre of the community, listening and reacting and pulling that community together that makes us so special. There's a mutual motivation that moves us forward that has helped our charity grow over the last half century. And this helps us ensure that we're able to respond to what our community our boss 
really wants us to do and help fund. We are entirely committed to listening and supporting and continuing the search and delivery of treatments on behalf of the community. And most importantly today, supporting your endeavours in what you do for our community, for which we are extremely grateful and we know how hard it is for you. Recently, we had our volunteer training weekend and this is where we get an opportunity not only to ensure that our volunteers are up to date with the most recent information, but also so they can update us anecdotally where we're up to. And it's opportunities like this to get feedback along with our site loss survey that helps us create content for you, their professional concepts, and make sure that that's useful, relevant, and now, as Matt says, comes with CPD points. So we're incredibly pleased with that. Retina UK is an organisation that has two main pillars. And that first one is hopeful tomorrow. And that's us funding research and aiding the way by ably getting treatments to market. And we do have one treatment at market specifically for the RPE65 gene. And the content of our previous site loss survey was an element that supported the passage through the notoriously tricky NICE process into clinic. We will continue to drive research and hopefully in the future, many more treatments for this group of conditions. So they all eventually become treatable and in essence, the symptoms become avoidable. We have a long, long, long way to go. So we also have our second pillar, which is about living for today with a range of services, events, support mechanisms to help the IRD community live their best lives today. You'll be hearing about this much later on today. So without going on much more, I'm really excited and a little bit privileged to give you some of the top line results from our very recent site loss survey, which is still extremely hot off the press. So this is our first analysis of it. At the end of the session, I'm hoping there'll be a couple of minutes. So if anyone in the room has a question, please get ready for that. Or if you're online, please use the Q&A. If you do have a more complex question or wish to speak to one of the team afterwards, then please do so. But please bear in mind, we're right at the beginning of getting to the nub of what the site loss survey means. So I think, do I press next? I'm looking at Matt. I think we'll give it a go, see what happens. There we go. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to look at the views and the experiences of people affected by inherited sight loss. And this is our survey findings. And we have some learning objectives, which I'll take you through in a moment. Okay. So one thing that Retina UK does recognise is that everybody here in this room today is extremely busy. We all have very, very busy work lives. And the fact that you've taken the time today to increase your knowledge is very much noted and appreciator. And I've got here to remind you yet again that it's CPD, but I, I, don't, I don't wanna go on about it. It'll come up lots in the future. There are 5.5 CPD hours for this event, and we're so delighted that we can offer that for you now as well. Retina UK is here to support, help you support the IRD community and the unique challenges around progressive sight loss. We listen to our community and respond to their needs and wishes. And this conference was born from that very ethos, encouraging and facilitating the very best information and support for professionals who wish to do their very best for the people and the families living with inherited sight loss. Interacting with professionals is an activity that led straight from the feedback we received from the community. Living with a rare disease is hard. 
and it's made harder because of the nuances and the specific challenges that tend to be really niche and not easily accessible information. And us being able to offer this information, signposting and awareness is an activity that we take incredibly seriously. And we are glad that you do too. Please work. Just gonna wait for my next slide. There we go, lovely. So today's objective, is to identify the key challenges experienced by people living with inherited sight loss and being able to proactively address these in your day-to-day -day work. We at Retina UK live and breathe the experiences and challenges of the IRD community and they, what they live with, excuse me. And we do this by a number of means. We have events, we have feedback, we have contact. And more formally, we test our thinking and hypotheses by undertaking a sight loss survey. This helps us build the charity the way the community needs and allows us to access invaluable insight into where there may be challenges and maybe even some positives that we can build into our services and our activities. It also gives us the opportunity to share this valuable information with professionals they may come into contact with. And more recently, it's even helped us influence at regulatory, government and NHS leadership level where we can help make life better for people living with inherited sight loss. So the sight loss survey. So we have completed now two three-year tracking surveys to really get under the skin of the challenges. We had our first in 2019, and as I've said, we're very excited to have our second straight off the press. And that happened in 2022, so is absolutely up to date. The amount of responses that we had is 1,700, and that over the two surveys, and that gives us, very importantly, statistically viable samples. This is so important because it means we can better rely on the analysis and we can see trends and patterns that may help us when we're planning and sharing information with groups like we are today. So the learning outcomes for today. The challenges around genetics and getting a diagnosis and understanding that diagnosis and the importance and difference between that and genetic counselling is a major part of the successful, successful delivery of treatments on so many levels. And it's important also for aspects of life. So when we think about genetic testing and genetic diagnosis, we immediately go to the science. It will help us find treatments. It will help with clinical trials. But there's also a really deep peace of mind for knowing that you are in the system for when clinical trials and treatments comes up. And that comes along with a load of familial um, benefits as well, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. There are inevitable psychological impacts, not only to the individual living with the condition, but also their family. And what we're going to talk about today is how we can improve upon that situation. The third is the impact of diagnosis. So, I think that in this room, there are people who have heard us speak before and have heard about the point of diagnosis and the challenges around having an untreatable condition and how difficult that is not only for the patient, but also for the clinician involved. In addition, 74% of respondents told us they weren't told about us at that point. And because we know 
because we've seen the data that nine out of 10 respondents are feel better informed because they're in contact with us and a quarter feel specifically more confident about their condition. We know the positive influence a referral to Retina UK can have at that point. And we'll be talking a little bit about referrals and signposting to us later on. We'll also learn a little bit more about the services that you provide, their usefulness, as well as the services that the responders feel are more elusive or they didn't even know existed. And then I will give you a very quick whistle stop tour of the services that we provide that will be useful to you in supporting your clients in the best possible way. There is a session about this later on today, which Paula will be leading, which will give you much more in-depth information. And then just a little bit more information about Retina UK, and I've kind of slipped this one in because we're really confident about the quality of our services. Our community tell us that, that, that our services have a positive impact on their life. And I just want to share with you some of, some of the statistics so you can hopefully feel confident that when you signpost your clients and the families you're in contact with us, you know they're getting the very best service and they get a say in where the charity is heading and what we do. Okay, so let's get on with our learning objectives for today. Let's talk about genetics. Okay, so as an inherited group of conditions, it is so important for the community to have a genetic diagnosis or at least the choice to have a genetic diagnosis. It helps researchers understand the disease and its mechanisms. There are benefits much further down the line in terms of market, um, market analysis for organisations that are actually um, competitively looking at treatments for this group of people. It can offer access to clinical trials and hopefully future treatments but also it can help the family and the individual in terms of maybe helping them with their symptomatic, symptomatic prognosis. Maybe it could help with family planning. It can give all sorts of peace of mind benefits of just knowing that you're in a system. And having the choice of having a genetic diagnosis is one that we feel is incredibly important for this group of people. Almost a third, 31% of respondents could name the gene or genetic disease type causing their sight loss. And this is twice the percentage in 2019 and suggests, suggests a positive increase in the number of people who were given a genetic diagnosis or at least know and understand their diagnosis. We are delighted that our Unlock Genetics resource, which was developed as a direct result of the 2019 survey, is now helping people understand their choices. They estimate, oh, sorry, excuse me, um, and having a positive impact on their diagnosis journey. Please visit our stand. There's lots of information and postcards that you can take away or visit unlockgenetics.org.uk for further information. It's really clear. It's really easy to understand. It is a complex issue. Um, and maybe, no, I'm not biased at all, that resource lays it out absolutely clearly what it's all about. The team have loads of information, as I say, that you can take away with you. You can take a small stack if you know that there are individuals and families that need this information. So, in brief, we know that increased knowledge increases confidence in asking the right questions and getting on a path to a diagnosis and understanding what it means if you choose to get one. 
There is still a long, long way to go, but huge, huge inroads have been made to ensure that the community is better equipped, has a genetic diagnosis, and are aware of research and clinical trials. So the other side of this coin is the scientific progress, finding those genes. And in conjunction with our, with our activity with the community, UK, uh, sorry, Retina UK also funds the UK RDC Consortium. That is a group of the top institutions in the country who collaborate fully to find, well, what I call shy genes. They don't immediately present themselves. And new gene defects that can cause this group of conditions. They estimate that because of that, because of that project, around 70% of genes are now diagnosed. So we are getting there. And the connection between the community awareness and participation and the scientific research for genetic diagnosis is vitally, vitally important. So like we say, there is a long way to go. But most clinical trials are not possible without a genetic diagnosis. We know this is important to the community. So please, please facilitate. Ask the question, do you happen to have a genetic diagnosis? Do you know about this? Have you had that choice? And if they're not aware, send them to Unlock Genetics to get a little bit more information. It's accessible, it's easy to understand. If that's not a route, please put them through to our helpline for a chat of somebody who not only is in the same situation, but also has the information to be able for them to take forward. And also, encourage them to ask questions of their clinical contacts. Nurses, iClinic liaison officers, as well as their ophthalmologists are all good sources when you know what to ask. And I think that's the difference what we're trying to do with Unlock Genetics, is offer that choice. Give people confidence in their condition because they understand what they're asking for. It really does make a huge difference. So the psychological impacts of the condition. So there's some really high numbers here. Anxiety, loss of confidence and stress are the biggest emotional or psychological impacts of inherited sight loss. And only 7% of our respondents say they have experienced no impacts like these. Or to be put the other way, 93% of our community who responded to our survey said that they had had some of these psychological impacts. The number is very similar to 2019, although there has been a marked statistical increase in people experiencing anxiety. There's been a 7% increase in anxiety from 71% to 78% in from two, sorry, 78% in 2022 and 71% in 2019. We think this might be, well, we're pretty sure it probably has pandemic links to that one. The pandemic had an immediate effect on our community. Our helpline calls raised, uh, rised exponentially. The sight loss community in general had a much harder than average experience of lockdown due to their sight loss. Social distancing, guiding, all became extremely difficult. And right at the beginning of the first lockdown, there were issues getting people with sight loss on the priority grocery delivery service. We started to engage successfully online with our community, and we believe that this activity really helped. However, we know we needed to do more. Our new Discover Wellbeing course aims to enable support for our community directly to better manage the emotional impacts of living with these conditions. 
I'm not going to talk too much about this as it is covered in the next session by a brilliant and brilliantly informed panel. But I will, however, share a soundbite from the Discover Wellbeing course, which I think sums up what we're trying to achieve. And I have to admit, it's been shamelessly stolen from Mary Thurston, Dr. Mary Thurston, who is in the next session. And she says, when your head is in the right place, you can achieve anything. And that is exactly what this new project is aiming for. As I say, there'll be lots more on that later. And the team who have, made, have produced this amazing project will all be here so you can have a full discussion and really get under the skin of what that project achieves for our community. On a positive note, and when I look at this screen, I'm glad there is a positive note. Those who have engaged with Retina UK are less likely to say they have experienced loneliness, isolation and depression compared to those who have not engaged. And I think this is another really strong reason to utilise the services that Retina UK offer. So let's try all together to maintain a positive well-being in a positive way together. There'll be more detailed statistics on, the Retina, on Retina UK later along with detailed info of our services. I think the one thing to say about what Retina UK does with psychological impacts is what we're aiming to do is, is stop people getting to crisis where we can't take referrals. And I'm sure that all of the professionals in the room that are dealing with this have staged referrals to make when people are in psychological crisis. We are aiming to stop that happening in the first place. So, how can you support us doing this? By signposting the Discover Wellbeing Project, which is in the next session. We have a helpline and talk support services. So, the number is on our website and the team have information for you to take away with. And I think it's important to let you know that the help, our helpline volunteers all are intimately involved or live with the condition. So, they really understand from an innate living point of view, what the caller is going through and was able to help them. Suggest attending one of our face-to-face -face meetings. We know that our community values meeting people in a similar condition, um, sorry, with a similar condition who are suffering with similar symptoms. So we know that that conversation really does work and has a positive impact on the community. Know the signs. Now, I think that when I, when I wrote this down, I, I know for a fact that the people in this room know the signs much, much better than I do. So please stay awake for them. And you do have something that you can offer if you are picking up on that. And of course, we all know about the active listening. So if you do hear that and somebody is starting to make sounds that they may be struggling with some aspect of their condition or living, this is where we can step in to stop that crisis point ever, ever happening. And that's really what we're aiming to do. So point of diagnosis. Excuse me just for a sec. Okay, so this is a point of disappointment for us. I'm going to be absolutely honest. When we look at how the point of diagnosis has worked, um, if you have a look at the screen, I'm going to explain it for those who can't quite see the screen. Everything has gone downhill in the last couple of years with this. The previous 20 year, we had a positive trend in people's experiences of having a diagnosis, and that has not continued. In fact, the evidence shows this is reversing. 
I've, since, ever since I started at Retina UK, I've been receiving anecdotal stories about point of diagnosis. One of our old trustees want, went to have his diagnosis maybe around 25 to 30 years ago. And he went for his diagnosis and his mother had the same condition. And he was told to get, be sterilized so that genetic, that genetic um, defect that went through his family stopped. And we hear similarly brutal experiences of a point of diagnosis. Our founder, Linda, felt so strongly at her point of diagnosis when they said to her, well, it's RP, um, go home, and at some point you're not going to be able to see anymore, that she decided to change it, and that was 46 years ago. So we saw a positive increase. We knew that that was improving, and that stopped. People diagnosed more recently were less likely to believe that the person giving the diagnosis understood how they felt or to be told about ongoing support available to them. Now, having had a look at this, as you can see, there is a sharp turnoff in, I was given the opportunity to ask questions. This person giving the diagnosis had a good knowledge of my condition. The person giving the diagnosis understood how I might be feeling. I was told about ongoing support available to me. I was offered emotional and psychological support and I was offered genetic counselling, all took a dip. And I wonder if this is due to the pandemic in some way. We know that face-to-face -face appointments and going into clinic became rare to absolutely extinct. And maybe the online experience wasn't, what, wasn't as effective and, um, and pleasant as it would have been to see somebody face-to-face. -face. But we need to keep an eye on this because we're saddened but it makes us doubly determined to help the professionals who have this incredible difficult task of making a diagnosis, which will always be incredibly difficult, but at least we might be able to make it more informative, more guiding. What makes it so difficult is that the experience is totally overwhelming for both parties and having a solid referral to make can be helpful not only for the patient who is looking for support but for all for the, also for the professional's peace of mind and Paul is going to be leading a session telling you much more about this later on. We continue to strive to influence this and we are involved in conversations about with sight loss sectors to understand how we can work together to make a positive change. And I think there's three words, and I'm going to say them a lot. If anyone's counting how many times I say a word, the word referral and the word signpost is going to come up a lot. Because we feel that if people aren't told about us at this point, it is an opportunity for both parties, whenever you come into contact with someone who's professional, please don't ever assume that in clinic there's been a referral or that another one of your colleagues, maybe in social services, have given a referral. It, please just don't assume that it's happened because I don't think it does. Um, we know that we've got high satisfaction rates, but not enough people in the community know about us. So please, if they hear it twice, three times, not a problem, but please continue to refer to us. Okay. So let's talk about services. Okay, so let's have a quick talk about the services. This is just an overarching, very top line. If you do need some more information, um, please do speak to one of the staff team afterwards. Um, we may not be able to answer de massively detailed questions on the services you provide, but we can certainly look for it and get back to you. So by far, the service that made the most positive difference was claiming benefits. Any advice on how to claim your benefits 
was massively well received. 87% of our community found it made a positive difference. But 36% weren't aware there was a service or told us it wasn't available to them. So if we look at that number of 36% and 87% of them, that is a statistically, um, statistically viable large amount of our community that aren't aware that these services to help them through that system are there. Second was mobility training. 54% accessed it, 34% were not aware of it or that it was not available to them. Now, my top line thinking on this is that it might be a symptomatic stage of where they are with their, uh, their inherited retinal dystrophy, but we also know that 85% of people who access mobility training found it to have a huge positive experience. So when you're speaking to your clients and your, and your families, sometimes it takes a little while for people to get their heads around doing mobility training. People try to be independent for as long as possible without AIDS. It really does make a positive difference. So please bear in mind that a huge 85% of our, our community who access mobility training found it to be a positive experience. Um, iClinic liaison officers, 43% had accessed and 60% said it had made a positive difference. So if there are any iClinic liaison officers or ECLOs in the room, well done. That's a huge positive difference you're making to our community. And we know at Retina UK that the demand on ECLOs is much higher than the current capacity allows. And the, I know that work in that area continues with my sector partners. So, in brief, advice on claiming benefits, mobility training and ECLOs, very high satisfaction rates, makes a huge positive difference. But they also struggle to access ECLOs. I know you're absolutely stretched. Genetic testing, genetic counselling, counselling and social support services all seem to be elusive to our community. So um, I'd be really interested if anyone's got any ideas about how we might be able to help that status quo. I'd be really interested in having that conversation. So signposting to Retina UK. In 2019, 74% of, of respondents were told, were not told, sorry, that there was support available from Retina UK and a third of people said they would have liked this. What is super disappointing is that less people are being told about Retina UK from health professionals than 20 years ago, and more likely to have found us through an internet search. And although this is great, our internet's working, that's fantastic, it's not ideal. Our satisfaction rates are fantastic. We make a positive difference, but if the community don't know we're there, then we need to really change that. We wanna have a positive impact on absolutely everybody. We are gonna have a new website. It's, I believe, and I'm not very tech savvy, as my staff will tell you, but our current one changed when we changed our brand about four or five years ago. And I believe that's quite geriatric in web terms. But our new one will be fully accessible and will give you uh, the best experience possible. But our current wealth of information and um, on everything from research to webinars to sports services is still really accessible on our current one. So please do have a look at that. And Paula will be telling us more about the website later on today. Okay, so we had a quick look at what AIDS people are using. And really interestingly is there's been a statistically significant increase in the use of smart devices as aids, notably smart home devices like Alexa and Siri 
and smartphones. So there's been over a 10% increase in use of these aids. Um, this is a, a brand new sort of area of uh, statistical information for us. So we're not sure what that means to us and what we can do with that information as we've just started our analysis. But we'd like to, we thought it'd be interesting to keep you updated. And I wonder if the pandemic, again, where people are at home using home smart devices might have had some sort of impact on that. Okay. So more about us. So this is where I sell us in as best I can with the fantastic information that I have, right? So compared with 2019, more people agree that they have a big say in what our charity does. This is great news as we really do pride ourselves on being led by the community. The original survey and the results have had a positive impact on this question because it had an impact on what we were doing. So my, my personal theory on this is in 2019, we asked this question and, that is, and, and asked them lots of questions into our community and what they told us to do on the whole, where we could, we did it. And I think that's been noted and I think it shows in the increase, of our, the, increase in the number of people within our community who think they have an impact on our organisation, which is absolutely what they do. 83% of respondents rate our services as good or excellent. Increases in satisfaction and take up of many aspects of our work and services compared to 2019. And obviously we are absolutely delighted and really want to continue in this right direction. You'll be hearing all about our services and how to signpost later on this afternoon. Um, and we'll be looking to increase that. Also, over a quarter of our community who responded have a greater confidence in managing their sight loss condition because they've got contact with us. And as we said right at the beginning of the presentation, confidence is really key. People know about their condition, they know what their choices are, that increases their confidence and also can minimise psychological impacts. And as I've said, here we go, I'm going to say the same words again, referrals are key. We can help you support the inherited retinal dystrophy community to the best of your ability by supporting areas where you need us as well. Okay, so very quickly, just going to run through our learning outcomes for today um, and take some of the key takeout learnings. I cannot reiterate enough the importance and benefit of having knowledge about having a genetic test, diagnosis, or counselling. It helps in so many areas. In addition to the scientific benefits for researchers and scientists and clinicians, from family planning to at least some peace of mind that you are in a system, all have a positive impact on the future and the psychological impacts of the condition. The psychological impacts. There is a consistent cycle with degenerative disease where you get a diagnosis or you have a physical change in your symptoms. Then you have to get used to that. You have to make the practical changes, the emotional changes. You have to strengthen yourself against what's happening. And then you have a period of getting used to it, knowing full well that that cycle's gonna go round and round and round while your condition degenerates. It's this cycle compared with the world that we're living in at the moment, the pandemic, the cost of living crisis is something we have to be aware of. And we know it has a significant impact on the community. So please listen, refer, please have awareness. And of course, only when it is not a critical situation, 
please refer to our helpline, our new Discover Wellbeing project and our support services. We know from the feedback that we get that the services and the ability and opportunity to meet people from the same group of conditions has a huge positive impact, specifically on loneliness and isolation and confidence in people's situations and conditions. Diagnosis, a very delicate issue for this one, but following on from our 2022 insights, we know we need to get a grip on this and we will be focusing on how to improve point of diagnosis, to make sure that we're there to support professionals, patients, their families, to make this situation, it's always going to be tricky. It's always going to be difficult. It's never going to be pleasant, but there's things that we can do as an organization that is aware intimately aware of the challenges around these group of conditions we can support that process and make it easier for everyone involved and that includes the professionals it's not an easy side of the bridge to be please sign posters sign posters please sign posters we really want to help and support you to help our community and we know you do an amazing job with very little resources on the whole so please this is it is an opportunity to drive into resource that's there for you the services that you provide. So please keep going. We know the benefits and mobility are key areas of benefit, but do not underestimate the power of any support. Being present, listening, being in the room with clients and families is one of the most important things that you could do for this group of communities. We know that on the whole, you're hugely overworked and under-resourced, and that is why we're gonna try, as well as offering on-the-ground services, to try and influence for increased resource, awareness, and funding for the vital roles that you play. I think I'm about on time for questions. So thank you very much for your attention. I really appreciate it. If there's any questions, please pop your hand in, or you can speak to a member of staff. We've got a couple of minutes. Have I dumbfounded everybody? <laughs> no? Sorry, there's a mic coming over for you, just one second. Hi. Uh, Hi. Joanne from the Coventry Sensory Team. Hello. Do you have any data about how many echoes there are around the country in, in different hospitals? Okay, so I'm going to be really honest with you, not to hand. Um, I can almost tell you that there's not enough. There's massively not enough. Um, but we can certainly see if we can find that data for you. If, if you could, just, I'll, we can take your name and, and email address and we'll probably get back to you on that one. Oh, I've got somebody at the back you might know. Yeah. Uh, Dave Williams from RNIB. Okay. It's around 100. Right. So, there's a hundred echoes and I'm, I'm wondering so what's that in terms of hospitals no no but oh we've got, uh, Denise is the lady up the front hi it's uh, Renu here I'm one of the echoes <laughs> and the 100th echo as well for RNIP <laughs> Yay, well done I believe there's about 175 eye clinics um, around the country. Um, not sure if that's country, including Scotland, but yeah, I think we're about probably just gone over 100 echoes now. So probably about 108 
at the moment, if that helps. Thank you. I appreciate that. No Paula at the back. Hi, I'm just wondering, it's Trish Wildey from Oldham. Hi. Um, in the statistics that you were going through and the, the information you got, we've got the mobility as a main mm -hmm. plus. Were there other areas around the rehab that were asked about or questioned about, or was it just mobility? Because it's interesting, that's the only thing that comes out of all the services we offer is a rehab service okay. that's noted. So Paula, just behind you as part of the project team, she's going to answer that for you. Hi, yeah, we asked um, questions on a, a, no, a number of different services um, and accessibility aids. Um, when we publish the full report, that data will be in there. Um, we're expecting that to do that within the next couple of weeks. As Tina said, it is literally hot off the press and we wanted to bring it to you today. Um, but yes, there will be more information about the, uh, the support services and the aids that people are using. Thank you, Paula. Denise? Right, my name's Abubakar and I'm from Sight Loss in Greater Manchester and I do um, Heritage Radio in North Manchester FM. Uh, basically, uh, I'm still waiting for my eye optician's appointment at the hospital in Manchester. Mm -hmm. How come people with visual impairment can't still see, get their appointment done and they say it's a backlog of COVID-19 and what's the way around that and how can people get involved with Retina UK? So I think there was a question about how maybe to speed up a referral into an ophthalmic clinic and how people can get more information about Retina UK. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So um, I think anecdotally, having spoken to clinician researchers, is that the pandemic has had a huge impact not only on clinical visits and backlog, but also research. So um, there is a, a massive push to regain momentum clinically. Sam De Silva, who's a consultant at Moorfields, um, cl uh, clinical, sorry, a consultant ophthalmologist, it, that might be an interesting question to her, is how do you, how can you push through that system if you need, if you need to see your ophthalmologist? In terms of getting involved with Retina UK, um, you can visit a website, or if you would like to do that today, um, we've got everybody with the same jumpers as me, or um, if you just shout for a Retina UK member of staff, we will guide you right through that. Just away. Oh, Hi, um, my name is Ruth. I'm at Eclo. I feel like I deserve a round of applause for that this morning. Yay. This is this is like one almighty loving one. session. Absolutely, yeah, I think we should. Um, but um, going back to what you were discussing about the fact that things have looked poorer for the last few years, I, I certainly know from my point of view here in Wales, mm -hmm. I throughout the pandemic, I was the only Eclo that was able to remain in clinic, seeing patients face to face throughout right. the pandemic. And I know that a lot of our, we have a dedicated genetic clinic in Cardiff um, mm. with a professor in genetics mm. who's an ophthalmologist. So we're very, very lucky. very lucky. But I can certainly see a correlation between that face-to-face -face support being not there and the sort of figures that you're showing. And yeah. I think it definitely reflects that having someone there as a point of information, whether it's at diagnosis or further down the journey, is hugely important and I, could, I just can see those figures and it makes me weep for the fact that so many of us weren't, I mean I was very very lucky mm. but it, it definitely to me shows a direct correlation between taking away that face-to-face -face support and the poor like negative impacts on outcomes for patients. Absolutely, I think you know our, our even on a professional level Zoom is an amazing tool and in the pandemic it did an incredible job but it 
doesn't it's a it's a very different communication than sat with someone in the same room i completely agree i think we've got a question at the back thank you um we've had a question online how many ECLOs support children young people and families perhaps um this is best answered by one of the ECLOs um, themselves um Does, i know in wales what the situation is i don't know if that kind of rolls out nationally but i certainly know that probably about 50 percent of our service in wales offers support to children i certainly do i have my own clinics working directly with a pediatrician and a low vision optom um seeing these kids through from birth so yeah i i, I think a significant number of eclos do but i do think there's definitely a gap in the market um i'm yet another echo hello um <laughs> we wiped out the echo, we've today. wiped out the echo clinics today haven't we yeah. sorry <laughs> um are you going to be doing any research on the impact of virtual clinics on um outcomes um i'm thinking basically mm. because of the lack of face-to-face -face consultation yeah. it seems to be pushing a lot more work the echo's way because yeah. uh, patients are not seeing doctors and we're we're asking to re refer on more and more since the impact of uh, virtual clinics I, I think that's a really interesting point there's there's one thing that we know at this stage and you know this data is about two weeks old so um is that we need to do something about that downward turn on that point of diagnosis and in, in interaction so um i think that's a really interesting point that actually i'll take forward probably with my rnib colleagues you know i think that's part of those and we've got one at the front i think yeah, she's coming. Yeah. Hi, morning, everyone. It's Davinda from RNIB. So I'll be doing a session tomorrow on technology. But a work that been, has been happening in terms of, say, for example, in Moorfields, is the Attend Anywhere uh, was a platform being used. And we all know there's a barrier. Not everybody's digitally included. And we know that the pandemic had a, an impact. Mm -hmm. So this work going on in saying, well, if you see an ECLO, whether it's virtual, how do people who are digitally excluded get the choice of being in the community, maybe in the high street, a library, uh, we're trying to be creative. So I guess the question is moving forward, is this can all be fluid? Mm -hmm. It's a community-based thing, rather than saying, you know, it has to be one model, the accessibility of services has to be choice. And it's not a one size fits all, but there is work going on with that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think that's all we've got time for now. So I think we're gonna have a break until 10, 10 past 11. Yes. So I'm, I'm looking at I'm looking at Matt for reassurance there because our first ever professionals conference. I didn't know if it was morning, night, noon, and everybody didn't know when to come back. But definitely ten past eleven, please, and we'll start our next session. Thank you so much. Okay. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. Um, so today, we are proud to be launching our new course, Discover Wellbeing. So we, we created the course in response to the finding of our 2019 sight loss survey, which revealed that 92% of respondents had experienced emotional or psychological impacts. Throughout, through, through Discover Wellbeing, uh, we aim to help those living with inherited sight loss and those who support them to develop an awareness of emotional well-being and practical skills to actively adapt to, life, adapt to life's up and downs. Tell us more. I'm delighted to welcome three speakers who have played a key role in developing uh, this program. We have Dr. Mary Thurston, John Manning, and Denise Rawdon. So first of all, I'd like to introduce from home, Dr. Mary Thurston. 
Hi. Gosh, can you hear me? Is everything okay? Somebody give me a thumbs up if, you, if everything's working as normal. I am delighted to be with you virtually from uh, from home. So anything can happen. You know, these things uh, are uh, not bomb proof. So I have a very vocal uh, guide dog who may bark if somebody comes to the door. I have uh, young women daughters who have been strict instructions not to stream things so that the Wi-Fi holds. So I'm really hoping that um, all will go well for, for, for this uh, opportunity to talk to you. So um, I want to really start uh, with a clear theme of let's talk about sight loss and mental health and um, whenever we mention mental health there's still a kind of stigma about it uh, some something left over from days of, of old where uh, you were mentally ill or you were mentally well but mental health is a continuum and um, and particularly with inherited sight loss or with acquired sight loss um, we need to be talking about how it impacts on mental health. So I want to start today by giving you a little bit of an overview of my own journey, uh, of my professional journey, my the research that I've been doing, uh, the direction of travel of, of where we're at now in, in terms of, of understanding and thinking about mental health. And, um, and hopefully we can uh, end with a, a call for you to be thinking about sight loss and mental health and being able to talk about it without fear and without stigma. So let me start at the beginning. Uh, I, I came from a family of artists and musicians and uh, my first degree when I was in my uh, early 20s was a, a degree in fine art. I was an artist. I did drawing and painting. Um, I also came from a family of teachers as well as artists, musicians were all teachers and I couldn't think of anything better than to go into teaching after I finished my uh, art degree. So I worked as very happily as a primary teacher and uh, life came along and I uh, got married and had kids and I was a very, very busy mum of uh, two toddlers like one had uh, one was they had been very close together so one was maybe three the other one was two and it was a real handful working full time and uh, juggling being a mom and then unexpectedly I became pregnant with my third child and um, meaning that uh, with uh, when she was born I was a mum to three toddlers under five and I was working full time now in that during that period, I began to have some problems viewing teletext. So this was a time before <laughs> we went all interactive. So, um, and I went to the optician. I have no sight loss in my family. And after a series of appointments at the hospital, they said, you have uh, retinitis pigmentosa and uh, you will, there, this, you will lose your sight. There is no cure. And, um, I don't think they said it in these terms, and this is what I heard. And uh, you, you know, we don't know how it will progress. It may because you have no family uh, origins, no nobody to kind of we can see how how it manifests. So it may come quickly. It may uh, gently deteriorate. Um, and uh, that diagnosis 
uh, rocked my world. So I was already stressed and stretched, if we can imagine, but having this in the mix. And I can still feel, you know, the shock of it. And I think, um, I, th I think we can't underestimate what a diagnosis, uh, how it impacts on people. So for me, uh, within a very short time, I had to give up driving. They were like, I can't believe you're still driving. But because some of you who are, uh, you might know about this condition that is like a tunnel vision uh, for, for the type that I have is like tunnel vision. So I thought I was driving really well, but I wasn't seeing all the hazards around about me. Uh, so I had to give up driving. And then I was thinking, how do I manage to get the kids to nursery? You know, how I can't live my life like with ease if, I, if I'm no longer driving. And that, um, I stepped away from teaching because I thought I can't teach if I'm if I don't have sight. How can I do my job? So because of that, then there was only one income coming into the house, and um, we had to move to a smaller house. So and I went into a very deep depression, and and you know to it still kind of haunts me really that these were missing years where my kids were so young and formative years. And, you know, it was a, a really heavy cost, the cost of the diagnosis for me to be in such a depressed and non-functioning state. So that lasted for perhaps maybe two years. I was on antidepressants, um, but life was bleak and I could, I just couldn't see a future. And I really struggled to be a, a mum with, with youngsters. I thought, how can I keep them safe? You know, uh, all of the kind of worries and anxieties were, um, were doubled and trebled and, every, you know, a very anxious and depressed time. So life changed uh, for me. I don't know if we have any representatives of guide dogs here, but life changed when I got my guide dog. At the point of getting it, it was perhaps the lowest point in my uh, emotional state because it was, um, it, it meant that I, you know, I had to accept I am blind, right? And that was a really big deal, a really big deal because I've been, you know, I, I hadn't grown up with any expectation of this happening in my life. It's not I saw like like parents or anything. It just that was so still out of the blue. And it seemed a sort of finality about it that I would become a guide dog user. And so my only kind of internal prejudices were um were really high, highly active on high alert that this is a change of status in my life. I was something different had happened and life changing. And, uh, but actually that was the best thing that ever happened because um, there was a kind of shift that um, the public, the, the British public generally love guide dogs. And so what happened was this tidal wave of warmth towards my guide dog, uh, which reflected on me. And, uh, it, and my guide dog was pretty special. She, she, um, won the first guide dog of the year she's called wanda and it was in 2004 and because she had she lived a life with three really young kids and she went to nursery school and to ballet classes and swimming lessons and you know all of the she she handled it with great uh, steadiness and patience and I uh, went to talk to brownies and things so my confidence grew on the back of this I, I became to kind of reconnected with the world and with uh, I kind of 
became more confident in myself, started doing things. And I, I took a, a night class in counselling skills. And I thought, because if I can't do teaching, what could I do that's not sight dependent? I thought, well, I can listen to people. So I, I loved the counselling skills and I stayed on and did a master's, uh, a diploma and then a master's. And for the masters, the research was that I decided to do was I was aware that at the time that I was diagnosed, there was a lot of practical support. So um, I had uh, liquid level indicators, you know, large screen things. Uh, I had, you know, I had had long cane training and um, I had my guide dog, but nobody was asking, how are you? nobody was asking so all that period that really dark period nobody i felt nobody could I, I felt i couldn't express it nobody was asking me about it and it was kind of out of sight except for my own family who were having the impact who were kind of dealing with the impact of it so i thought i wonder if i know that sight loss was really hard for me uh, emotionally i wonder if it was hard if it's hard for others so i had this kind of curiosity and that was my first research project was uh, called the emotional impact of sight loss and the counseling experiences of blind and partially sighted people because i had gone for counseling but I felt it wasn't effective. I felt my counselor didn't understand, didn't understand the nuances of what I've gone through. And almost like I couldn't even begin to tell her how it was impacting on me, you know, because I felt she won't, she, she just won't get it. So, um, so I was curious about, you know, the emotional impact of sight loss and about others, if they've had counseling, how, how was it? And so that was a really, um, important piece of research that kind of underpinned all the rest of my research so what happened was it was very clear from the participants that uh, there was an emotional impact and um it took it came in kind of there were various themes that came out and one was around diagnosis how people felt such fear and shock around diagnosis and the other one was around another theme was around coping with deteriorating sight and i don't know um like the, the lived experience of coping with sight i don't know if anybody here has sight loss uh, but the lived experience of it is that you, you each eye is important so you have like your good eye or you know my good eye is getting worse or my, you know uh, so it's really difficult with each deterioration there comes a new impact of like is this it can i cope with this you know how am i going to manage now um another theme that came up was about um yeah about change um, feelings of loss so as i experienced deep feelings of loss others felt the same others had lost jobs or uh, lost um hopes and dreams like you know of of one person had wanted to become an engineer and travel abroad and that all got uh, taken away when they had their diagnosis of sight loss so loss of driving license all the other common kind of losses loss of um hobbies and things there was a whole raft of losses and that kind of flew against the flew in the face of the kind of um, there was a trend, you know, and I, I, and I absolutely supported the social model of disability. And some of you here will know a lot about that. But there was a tent that that it, it was really not cool to talk about, you know, 
the, a loss aspect of, of sight loss, but there was great personal loss, you know, reported in, uh, from these people that were interviewed. Um, then there was also a change of, of perception of self, like who am I now that, you know, uh, like particularly from those maybe who had been in caring roles and who felt that they now couldn't care and they were like being cared for. And that was really hard for people. Um, changing public, the emotional impact of, of rehabilitation, that was really tough. Like um, people talked about, I, I, I went into this room of blind people and I saw my future and I, you know, I ran out, <laughs> I just couldn't see it. So it was like, I think it's really important from a professional point of view to understand that what you're coming in with in terms of, I can help you solve your life by giving you this, it has a terrible emotional, may have a terrible emotional impact. You know, people are not maybe not ready to to engage with it, um, and uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, other things like changing relationships with the family and and with the public. You know, so the public don't really understand sight loss, and there was a you know a lot uh, of uh, reports about you know the public's insensitivity or awkwardness around sight loss, like talking to the partner, uh, saying you know. You know, um, in shops and things and public places. So there was a huge impact and people generally were skeptical of counselling because they wanted it. They said, I want somebody to know, I want somebody to talk to, but you know, they won't understand, right? So that was a really important aspect of this. They won't understand. So from that, there was a, uh, from that uh, research, there, I, I, there was an identifying an identity of five key stages of sight loss. And I think these are really important. I, I should have taken a note of the time. I hope I'm still okay for time. Um, so the five stages of sight loss are around diagnosis. Stage one is around diagnosis. Stage two is a kind of keep calm and carry on stage. And that's where, you know, person wants to have life as normal so if they've been into uh, involved in some kind of low vision services they might hide all the trappings of it maybe putting a cane in a backpack or uh, you know not using their liquid level indicator in public or whatever they kind of keep calm and carry on then there's a point of impact which is stage three where the sight loss impacts on the person's life and they can no longer carry on as they were and that might be the loss of the driving license or um it might be another loss a loss of a hobby or, or a loss of uh, something important to them so uh then there's another stage about coming out as a blind person where you are engaged in rehabilitation you're out with your white stick or your guide dog and then you have to deal with the whole of public how uh, how they interact and all of that well, you're only just maybe coming to terms with your own identity as a blind person. And then there's a fifth stage, which is like a new normal stage where life becomes normal again and, and you, you kind of get in touch with your resources and everything kind of calms down until it might, it's not linear, I've made it sound linear, it's not. It can be like, it can be compressed. So at the diagnosis, you might have a point of impact if you're told at the hospital maybe you can't drive then your life is impacted bang you know right there or it might be spread out so for example you might have somebody 
who an intimate partner who is really caring for you and you might not you might kind of carry on and living your life until something happens to the intimate partner and you're then the point of impact happens so way down the line so um, but it is really important to understand the five stages of sight loss so that you understand where your clients are in their journey and how to best uh, support them so um let me see i don't know how long i've got <laughs> left uh, I sort of uh, paid more attention to my starting time uh, let me talk about um, let me talk about emotional support we, we used to call it emotional support back in the day but um, it was became really difficult to think well what is emotional support what do we mean by that is it tea and biscuits and sympathy or is it something more is it counseling what is it so rnib constructed a framework of levels of tiers of support so that we have a kind of shared understanding so um, a new addition to it is tier zero which I think is like helping uh, the clients to be in touch with their own resources or self-help resources, um, things that they find nurturing. Maybe it's like their re religion or uh, mindfulness or things that are important to them. Uh, a tier one is the kind of soft support. So maybe like the ECLOS, uh, the eye clinic liaison officers, a listening ear, you know, a, a first point of call and that uh, then if, if, if that wasn't sufficient there's a tier two which is more structured counseling a uh, formal counseling and if that doesn't work then there's a tier three which is like the meds more severe mental health services so we had a kind of tiers of support and i think that's really important because we recognize that different people need different support at different points of the stages of cycles right so it's really important it's not a one-size-fits-all and um, one of the uh, the direction of travel now is uh, I'm involved in a collaborative uh, venture with the VI Charity Part Partnership with Cardiff University, who are uh, wanting to encourage professionals to talk about mental health. And some of you might have been involved in the focus groups for this. And it's the, the tool to start talking about the mental health is the PHQ-4. And there are just four simple questions that you ask your, your client about the mental health, whether they've you know, been feeling nervous or anxious or on edge, or whether they've not been able to stop worrying, or whether they've been feeling down or depressed or hopeless, or whether they've lost interest or doing pleasure and things. So they're not they're not hugely, you know, uh, life changing questions, but it's really important that we start opening up these conversations. So there's a piece of work being done at the moment to produce a kind of training package to help professionals have these conversations. So this is why the retina course could not be better timed. It is. Um, I'm just was so delighted to be involved in it because the deliver uh, the the discover well-being course it kind of um is like going to sit i think in a kind of tier zero tier one kind of place where this is helping blind and partially sighted people get in touch with their own resources and it's opening up conversations about mental health i think it's been such a secret and you know stigmatized thing and i think we really need to normalize this of course sight loss will impact on mental health just as cancer macmillan have really sorted out and blasted away any prejudices in their campaigns about if you if you have cancer you realize you you know there's going to be an aspect to this 
it's the same with sight loss, not that sight loss is life-threatening, but it's life-changing. And I think, you know, we need to understand that there, is, there will be an aspect. So I would, I think as a, a, a final parting, and I have no idea if this is, uh, if I've overrun, I'm really sorry. And if I've underrun, I'm sorry as well. But as a final parting, I think talk about mental health, you know, talk about it. Ask what's going, how are you? How are you feeling? How are you doing these days? You know, and and don't be scared about the answer because you're not going to make a person feel bad by asking them how are they doing? How how are they? So, discover well-being an amazing resource, and I'm so delighted to be part of it. So well done, Retina UK. So I'm going to stop there. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mary. Hello, uh, I'm John, nice to meet everybody, and everyone online, which I've been specifically told not to forget. So there are lots of people online as well, so it's incredible to be in a room with basically 200 people, really, if you're counting on the online people too. Um, so thank you, Mari. Um, it's quite nerve-wracking following someone so prestigious, um, where I'm just a chap from Aylesbury. Um, but I... I'm the founder of Arthrellis Mental Health Support, and I, with help, lots of help, um, wrote all of the courses that are in the Discover Wellbeing portal, as well as um, poking the, the developers with a stick um, to make sure that everything is accessible. And I wanted to just talk you through a little bit about my background, how sort of our take on wellbeing and mental health, and a, a bit about my story as to how professionals can have an impact on people in a really, really positive way. So I started Arthur Ellis, which is named after my granddad's Arthur and Ellis, uh, about five years ago. And it was following being diagnosed with a particular condition uh, called bipolar disorder. Has anyone heard of that before? Show of hands. Yeah. Good. Nice one. Um, it's an interesting situation because I don't have uh, impaired vision, but I do understand it from the perspective of having something that is incurable, that you have to live with, and that you can't necessarily do too much about, but you have to manage. And that's very much our approach to mental health, whether you've got a condition or not. We all have to manage, right? So. I started recognizing a variety of different things within mental health and I started trying to access support. Um, well, I didn't actively, but my parents did for me when I was about five years old. I started experiencing a variety of issues following um, negative experiences when I was a kid. It led to a variety of operations. I was in a children's mental health hospital when I was six. And I'm going to talk through a little bit about the introduction to the therapeutic world that I've had and the different introductions that I've had to the therapeutic world um, or the world of mental health. So that first introduction when I was six, it's probably what you can imagine. So beige walls, there was a two-way mirror. I think there was a giraffe that measured your height. I don't know if anyone ever seen those sorts of things. Very typical, very standard. 
but and it was basically a, a room with beige chairs beige walls I think it was like a, a pine coffee table with tissues on it like you're probably gonna cry so we'll put these here and I I didn't really feel very as a six-year-old you know there wasn't very wasn't very colorful or anything like that I don't remember it a huge amount but with that introduction I decided not to talk to anyone again for 10 years until I was 16 and when I was 16 that was um, that was the first attempt at my life that I tried and I went to the GP after that so it's kind of backwards in hindsight you should probably go to the GP before you get to that point but I didn't decide to at the time got an antidepressants I was diagnosed with with uh, depression and anxiety and with the tablets that I was taking um, I know there's probably sort of pharmaceutical people in the room so I went sort of downgrade tablets but I put on a lot of weight uh, it was about four stone I put on and it was just I didn't feel I, I was you know happier but I wasn't healthier and that I didn't I couldn't I was struggling to find that balance either I'm happy and incredibly overweight to the point where I can't do anything or I'm just not um, or I'm not happy so when I was 18 there was another out of unwellness um, and then I moved to Milton Keynes and it was a completely new territory so the professionals that I had been dealing with were completely new and it was a new county new rules everything and I was in a waiting list for around about four years in order to, to see somebody about what's been going on with me for, for this whole time um, there's so much strain that these services are under that it's very very unfair really for them to you know for, for us to expect them to be able to be as responsive as that but when you're having an issue with your mental health or you're having an issue with your well-being you don't really anticipate a cold in six months time and go to the doctor just in case you, you need that help then so I was really fortunate enough to be able to go to the Priory if anyone's heard of the Priory celebrities and stuff I've got no gossip but um, but it was £400 for an appointment. Um, and I was very strict with them that I have one appointment. I, I'm, I'm not going to file for bankruptcy. I'm coming to one appointment and then just tell me what's going on and I'll leave. So I did. And in comparison, that introduction, the receptionist had a psychology degree, a chap called Piers. I still remember his name. It was brilliant. I was offered a coffee when I went in. And the psychiatrist that I sat down with explain my bipolar to me by taking an extra 10 minutes on the appointment drawing it and really helping me to understand on the way home when i realized i've you know got this label or this diagnosis now do me just knowing that doesn't have a bearing on what i need to do day to day in order to improve my situation improve my life control my condition and feel like i'm in a place where i'm managing it rather than it's managing me and telling me what to do so I, I quit my job and started Arthritis. And we are a team of 40 now, different practitioners from counseling backgrounds, psychology, clinical psychology, special educational needs. And we are a series of organizations that all feed 100% of their profits into a charity where we operate a one-to-one -one service for children, young people, and adults. So we see kids from five years old up to, um, still kids at heart but 91 year olds um, so we see a, a wide spectrum of people and we're seeing about 60 people a day 
So things within arthritis have really sort of transformed and, and we see everybody within a week. And it's that instant accessibility, whether it's to a practitioner or whether it is to knowledge or practical support that is so important. And the difference between somebody feeling like they're being supported and having one of those negative introductions to the, to the world of therapy. Um, so I'm going to completely contradict everything now and tell you that you're not going to be therapists if you go through one of these courses. Um, it's not designed to make you a counsellor or anything like that. But it's designed to have a look at the important things that aren't clinical or therapeutic. With my bipolar, I've had a wide spectrum of experiences from giving, being given a year to live when I was 24 because of the amount that I was drinking. Um, or being on top of the world and running a marathon at 3, 3 a.m. But I still ran a marathon, which was quite impressive. Um, so since I've taken on some of the, or majority, and, and started to lead my life in a way that is within these courses and, and really focused on lifestyle, my behavior, I haven't had a relapse in my condition for the last six years, which in comparison to the 20 before that, um, it's a ridiculous change, it's amazing. And when we work with people in our one-to-one -one service, we see an average increase of well-being by 64% after six appointments. So working with Retina UK and, and Mari as well, based off of those five areas that Mari spoke about, from, oh, I've said them so much, I can't remember them now, but it was from diagnosis through to new normal. Um, we have, taken all of those different aspects from different people's points of view. So forming this, one of the most important things was that I'm not making any assumptions or thinking what do people with um, sight loss go through. So everything has been formed from the community. So we had focus groups of people from very early stages of their sight loss journey who maybe have a gene or they've just been diagnosed through to people who have limited or, or no vision, and then all of the friends and family that come into that as well, to understand what are the differences between everyone's experiences. And we were able to, so say we wrote courses, we basically put, put all of their experiences together. So within, and I know Denise is gonna go through it in a bit more detail shortly, but within the courses, what you're gonna find is very practical walkthroughs of positive behaviors that if you identify people aren't doing, then they're gonna be on a downward trajectory to becoming unwell. So that's things like exercise to keep it really nice and simple. There's focus, which draws our attention to the present moment and keeps us away from thinking too much about the future. There's discover, which is all about learning new things. Communicate, which is communication styles and how we communicate with each other. And then helping others and getting a really good balance of those behaviors across not only our lives because you guys are incredibly important to do this and model this yourselves in order to help others but it gives you that knowledge to be able to talk people through that you're supporting so you can actually walk through practically how can you help somebody one of the things when I was struggling was I would speak to my friends or I would speak to people but no one ever knew what to actually do or to suggest so we've gone through those practical steps, but also additional tools like thought records, which are typically found in CBT that you can learn how to do. 
motivational planning tools and grounding techniques and different things that can be helpful on your travels supporting this community. So one of the things that was incredibly important for me to, to do within this, within this course is to ensure that it's also measurable. And I know that was really important to Retina UK as well. So there are also questionnaires built into it. So we're not spying on you or anything. It is literally just um, a way to, to measure if the course has an impact like we want it to on people's levels of motivation, their self-awareness, their ability to regulate their emotions and different aspects like that. So with, with the introduction to the therapeutic world, just to finish with a bit of an example of that, we ran some groups for children who were within uh, drug and alcohol affected families. So often the, the children may have been taken away or they may be growing up with people that aren't their original family. And we did a group which was about emotional health and emotional support. And it was about different feelings and personalities and stuff where the kids would draw different animals that represented them. So they were like whale tigers and lots of different things. And there was a, a lad in there called Max. And he said that it was the best morning he's ever had. He was about 12. And I said to the, the guys that I work with, we're only doing like six of these groups. It's not enough. We need to do a lot more. So how do we do that? Well, it's not going to fix them. And I, I was wrong in saying that. And my team luckily pulled me out on it and said, we're not trying to fix these people. We're just, they're going to need support for the rest of their lives. But what we can do is give them a really good introduction so they keep on asking for help. And that was kind of the, the approach that we took to this to equip you guys with and CPD points as well, but equip you guys with the knowledge to be able to respond in an effective way straight away so that people do keep asking because the, the support there is so good. So yeah, I, I look forward to finding out how everyone gets on, um, seeing everybody joining. So please feel free to register. Uh, Denise is going to walk you through it, but I'm going to be sticking around as well. So if anybody does want to talk to me, please feel free. Um, and thank you all so much for coming, both in person and online. Appreciate it. Hello, everyone. I'm Denise from Retina UK. Please bear with me one moment while I try and look at Paula to say how I'm turning my machine on. Um, I wanted to just talk a little bit about, um, excuse me one moment while I just, uh, oh, it's come to life, bear with me. So I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, the actual portal itself. Um, we have been so privileged to work with the experts that you've seen up on the stage so far today. Um, and I can't thank them enough both for their involvement, their support that we've actually had, and their expertise. But what I want to do is actually show you, we've talked about it, we want to actually show you what Discover Wellbeing actually is. John and Mary have both alluded to the fact of what it isn't. It isn't counselling. It's not there to replace counselling. This is going back a couple of stages before that. What we want to do 
is start to talk to people earlier in their, in their journey before they reach that crisis point. We want to avoid people feeling the way that Mary did, feeling the way that John did when he was 16. We want to avoid that. We want to start talking to them when they're still feeling relatively okay. So they can understand and have some knowledge, tools, confidence and support to actually recognize when their well-being is good and when their well-being takes a dip. We want to make sure that they've got things in place that they can start to actively, proactively use to help them get back on, a, on an even plane. So I wanted to take you through and show you a little bit more about it. Um, there's been so much talk within the sector around mental health and there's lots and lots of wonderful things going on. There's lots of site loss specific counselling that, uh, that is available to, to our community, but we know that those wait lists are long. And what we want to do is by capturing people earlier, hopefully avoid the situations where more people are finding themselves at crisis point, where they're needing counselling, where they're needing medication. And if we can do that, with a group of people, it means that fewer people are actually reaching that point and those that do hopefully will be able to access the services sooner. We recognised that there was a lot of talk. We wanted to take action. Our survey, as you heard earlier, 92% back in 2019 told us that they had a negative impact on their emotional well-being and mental health through their sight loss. And that figure was very much the same again. It was 93% when we've just done this latest survey. So it's really timely that we were able to actually take action and put this project into being from, from today. So what does it actually look like and how can you get to it? Well, the first thing is the landing page on our website. So our website is actually going to, um, going to have a page, where in fact it's got it up live today, a page, if it's retinauk.org.uk slash wellbeing. And we have lots of cards, that I think there's one in each of your bags with that, the detail on, and there's also some next door if you stop by and have a chat with us. The website actually has some information, so it's got some videos there from both Mary and John, thank you very much, explaining a little bit, as they have today, about why the courses may be of use to you as to what, what the benefits are actually going to be. It's got the link to the portal to get into and actually start actioning it. But what we realised is that one size doesn't fit all. And John alluded to the fact that we recognised as people are on this journey that actually you've got people who are very early stages, so they're at the diagnosis stage or perhaps even before they've had a diagnosis where you know, their sight has changed, they've noticed something, and they know the conditions run in their family, so it's a, it, that they're concerned for the future. It could be that people are, um, they've been diagnosed for some time, but actually their sight hasn't deteriorated to any significant point yet, but they are concerned about the future and what that might bring. So we decided that we wanted a course called Early Stages, and that's very much about aiming to help people understand those feelings of apprehension and take positive, practical steps to prepare for the future. But there are people that have been living with their sight loss for a long, long time. 
more advanced in their journey. And we talk about advanced, but it's, it's quite a relative word, isn't it? And it's what, it's what the person feels is advanced. So it could be that actually they have very little useful sight left. Or actually they've still got some really useful sight, but they've had a point of impact that's really changed things for them and the way they're living at the moment. So this course is really about helping people to understand those feelings of loss that Mary talked about to adapt to that reduction in sight and to take practical steps to, live a po to continue living a positive life. And our third course is all about supporting others. That's the one that is developed for people who are supporting, whether it's loved ones, colleagues, friends, or you guys supporting your clients that are living with sight loss. It's very much about providing you with valuable support because the one thing I do know is that when we're supporting other people we often forget to check in on ourselves we sort of put ourselves in the background and that's that's really not a good idea it can take an awful lot out of us as individuals when you're dealing with people time and time again and you're hearing such difficult situations that they're in please please have a look at the course work your way through it and I'm hoping that it's going to be really valuable to you and your own well-being. But it's also going to provide you with some really useful skills, tools and confidence to just recognise and support those people that you're actually dealing with, the ones that you are supporting. We want you to empower them to better manage their well-being and notice and recognise when things are taking a slightly negative turn and understand the tools that they can use to get back on track. The courses are completely free to access, so by anybody. Um, we aren't limiting it uh, to, to just those living with inherited sight loss. But the one thing we are limiting, unfortunately, is our um, assisted journey. So you'll, we talk about accessing support. Alongside the courses, they're available for anybody to do at any time. In your own time, sat in front of a laptop at home or on your mobile phone when you're going for a walk, it's a really nice, easy course to follow. You can take the time that you want, you can work at your own pace. If somebody wants a supported journey, if they want somebody to have a chat to along the way, someone to give some encouragement, guidance, be a sounding board for some of the activities, then they will be able to access what we're calling an assisted journey. So we've got trained up a, a fabulous team of uh, volunteers to actually offer a weekly call uh, to people to actually offer that guidance and support as they're working through to complete the course. Like I said, the courses are available to anybody, but for that assisted journey, that, that's really, at the moment, we can only manage to, we've only got enough volunteers to, to actually look after um, our community. But please do let us know if you've got any questions around that. So how does it actually work? What does it look like? Well, the first thing is, if you click on the Discover Wellbeing um, link, it will take you through to our portal. And it will bring you onto the, um, onto the, sorry, welcome page. The welcome page has got a video that John's prepared for us, just telling you a little bit about the course. And at, near the top, it gives you the opportunity to register here. 
The registration is very simple. As we said, we've worked with our community to make sure that that's nice and easy to use. And all we ask is your name, email, and for you to set up a password. We do ask you to actually tick a box to confirm that you're happy for us to collect and hold your data. And the data we're referring to, as well as your name and email, is just that, that questionnaire that John mentioned about actually filling in how you're thinking and feeling, both at the beginning of the course and at the end. Once you click sub submit, you can actually save your details, so it can get, save your password, so it makes logging in a whole lot easier, which I haven't done because I'm using somebody else's laptop, so please bear with me. And it will take you back to the welcome page. I'm not going to play John's video. I hope you'll log in a little bit later and, uh, and have a listen to that. But as you scroll down, you'll see the three different courses that are available for people to choose from. Early stages, living with change, and supporting others. Underneath that, you've got the option to go in and click on our frequently asked questions. So there's lots of things in there, whether it's about, you know, sort of how you get to the activities, how you save them, but there's also information in there about how to, um, you know, sort of get any certificates and things like that. To have an assisted journey, if somebody actually wants to have the support of a volunteer, they can click on that button and it asks, it explains a little bit about what to expect, and we just ask you to email wellbeing at retinauk.org.uk to request that. We will then do an initial phone call with the individual to find out a little bit about them, what they're, you know, so where they're up to, what their expectations are of the course, and we'll try and match them with a volunteer that we think that they'll, they'll click with, that they'll get on with, which is really important. And then there's Get More Support, and that's going to take you back to our website and some of the other services that we, uh, that we actually offer. But we want you guys to have a look and work through the supporting others. So let's just take a look at that. And as you can see, it's a very clean, simple, easy to follow website, a portal. So the first thing it asks you to do is to go through the questionnaire. I'm not going to go into that, but it's a list of questions and it just asks you to rate yourself as most like me or least like me. And that gives us an idea, a starting point of where you are at this time. It will then go in and allow you to go in to each of the modules in turn. When you log in, the first time that you go through the course, it will take you through and guide you through step by step. Sorry, I'm <laughs> just distracted. Uh, lead you through step by step. Um, what it won't let you do is jump ahead. So when you have finished a module and you finish the course and you want to go back and revisit any of those exercises, any of those activities, watch the videos again, you can do that at any time. Each of the modules is structured in exactly the same way and it's going to give some information. It's got a video of John actually going through the information that you need for that section and then there's a couple of um, a couple of activities for you to download and they're the, they're the areas that we really feel are going to make a massive difference those tools that individuals can actually use 
to, to identify the different areas, taking their thoughts to court, for example, you know, having a thought diary as to how, to, how they're actually feeling and what difference it makes. Those activities are the things that people will be able to come back and revisit time and again. For example, when they're feeling well, if they've done this, when they're not feeling too bad, they're in a good place. If in three months' time they find that actually their well-being is taking a little bit of a dip, it's taking a little bit of a negative turn, they're having more bad days than they previously had, to go back and revisit those activities and see what am I doing differently? What behaviours are actually different now to what I was doing then when I was in a good place? It will help them to understand and hopefully put some of those good behaviours back into action and improve their well-being. So we'd really, really like you guys to go back and have a go at this course. And to encourage you to do that, we have actually had the course accredited. So if you complete the course, you will get CPD points for that. In summary, remember these courses are all about empowering people with knowledge, understanding, recognition, to pro and tools to proactively manage their well-being in a positive way. We need to normalise the conversation out there about how people are feeling, not just about their eyes and their physical health. We want to talk about their emotional health and how they're managing day to day. But don't assume that there's somebody else doing it. Don't assume someone else is having that conversation with your client. It's much better if somebody's checking in with a family a couple of times than if nobody is at all. And to just emphasise that point, there was a quote that actually came back on our survey from someone who said mental health isn't just an issue for the person with RP, it can affect other family members. No health professional has ever inquired about how my sight loss has impacted my family. It, it seems they're just expected to cope. Please don't let that be your client that's saying that. Help us to spread the word, talk to your colleagues, talk to the people that you're working with, and please use it to help yourselves as well. Thank you. If I can invite John back up to the stage and we can open up for any questions. And perhaps bring Mary back as well if she's still available. John, do you want to come up? Is there any questions? Hi there, um, my name's Chloe, I'm from Usher Kids UK and we exist to empower kids and their families uh, that live with Usher syndrome, which is a dual sensory loss condition. So I'm really excited about this resource and I, I think it's brilliant that Retina UK has kind of commissioned something that's so brave and needed. Um, I particularly like this idea of getting ahead, getting upstream of the inevitable impacts. Um, it's what I see when I talk to young people and their families um, and it's the statistics that feel unacceptable to me when we look at the adult population of those living with these conditions. So um, I'm really excited to use it. I just wonder about when I'm talking with families, if you think this resource would be appropriate for parents who've received a diagnosis on behalf of their children, because often with genetic testing now, they're receiving the news 10 years ahead of symptoms. So they're living with that kind of knowledge of something that's ahead, um, but also for the children themselves, we support 0 to 25 year olds. Just wondered what you thought about that. John, Hello. Um, yes, it will be. 
appropriate. Um, the way that we, we approached the like, talking through of tools and talking through of resources and different skills was very much learn it yourself first so that you're able to talk it through with others and, and doing it as like a, you're almost modeling that behavior so that it then passes down into your family or your friend or whatever it might be. Um, the examples and the different things that we focused on in terms of the explanations of those, that was all formed from the focus groups. Um, so any example that we might use as a bit of a walkthrough of that particular tool, um, then it's based off of what friends and family have already said, real life things. So I, I won't use her name, um, but if she's online or here, she'll know that it's her. There was a, a particular um, lady in, in one of the focus groups and she said that she doesn't use a cane because her family, being her parents and stuff, would be ashamed of her. And it was a, when we were reflecting on that in the focus group, um, kind of said to her, like, have you ever asked them how they feel about you using one? And just simply doing that, um, she went away and did it and stuff. So it's it just, it's, it's because the community hasn't really had anything like this before, it doesn't necessarily have to be everything in the course that you're using. Um, and we do, I don't know, we don't want it, things to be doom and gloom or things to be too heavy. So the way that we describe good and bad behaviours is using a methodology that we came up with uh, called bananas and donuts. So all of your positive behaviours are your bananas because you can have one every day and it's only going to improve your health um, unless you're allergic to bananas, like pick a different fruit. Um, but if you imagine, you know, those indulgent behaviours that we sometimes want to do, like having a takeaway or having a drink or I've scrolled so much on social media, now I can't possibly go for that run. Um, there are donuts, they're like our indulgent things. But again, if you would have one of those every day or do it consistently, just like eating a donut, you're going to get more unhealthy. So it's, it's quite a, a light way to talk, certainly amongst each other, but with certainly with younger members of the family as well. So hopefully that helps. Thank you. Thanks. Hello, we've got a question online. Um, the question is, we support unpaid carers supporting those with sight and hearing loss. Would this course be suitable for them? I think it's a similar situation. Absolutely. Yeah, and it, we, we definitely encourage them to do so. Yeah, get on. The, the supporting others is going to really help to provide them with the support for their own well-being as I said, and, and provide them with some really useful tools and um, ways in which that they, they can open conversations with the person that they're supporting. Thanks, Kate. Any other questions at all? No? I think that leads us in nicely then to lunchtime. Um, John and I will be on the stand next door, so if you do think of any questions or just want to come by and have a chat about the project, please do stop by um, and, and do get online. Um, you know, it'd be really good if you could, uh, on your way home today, as long as you're not driving, actually take a look. Thanks very much. Right, good afternoon, everybody. How was your lunch breaks? Excellent. I hope you guys at home enjoyed yours as well as we did here. Um, so, well, welcome to the afternoon session. Um, so, 
our information and support provision um, at Retina UK means a huge amount to um, to all of us, and more so when we hear how much it's of an impact it has on people affected by sight loss and how much of an impact it has on you, our professional community as well. Um, so to tell you more about how uh, you impact us and how we can provide support to you and your community, um, we have a great session this afternoon headed up by Paula McGrath, our Director of Development. Good afternoon, everybody. Everybody hear me okay? That's better, that's me. So welcome to the session, everybody. Um, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with you all this afternoon about the services provided by Retina UK, how these can help you in your roles and also those you support. So the plan for this session is I'm going to give you an overview of our services. We'll then take a few moments. Um, I'll go through each of the specific services. Please don't worry about taking too many notes. We'll share information with you afterwards. And then I'm delighted this afternoon that we'll be joined by Bavini, Sean and Denise, who are going to talk to us about their experiences of either being involved by the way of a volunteer in our services or because they've accessed Retina UK services. There will be questions at time for questions at the end. So as we've done earlier in the day, if you're in the room, please uh, raise your hand. And if you're at home, please ask questions using the Q&A. So today we're joined by ECLOs, rehabilitation officers, teachers, social workers, and many other professions. I'm very aware that all of you have one thing in common. And that is the drive to do the very best you can for those affected by inherited sight loss conditions. No doubt something else you all have in common is pressure of workload. Too little time to spend with those that you support in your professional role. You may not have the time to lend a listening ear. You may not have all the information that you would like to be able to answer the many questions that I'm sure you're asked. After all, these are relatively rare conditions and you all have expertise in your own area. This is where we can help. Here at Retina UK, we have a small information support team. Our staff team is made up of Matt, Denise and Mark. But this small staff team is ably supported by a committed group of 50 information and support volunteers. We simply couldn't do what we do without them. Each and every one of them has lived experience of inherited sight loss and a willingness and desire to share their experiences to make a difference with others. They're able to provide information from the perspective of somebody who genuinely knows what it is like to live with an inherited sight loss condition. They've been there, they get it, they genuinely understand. There is no need to explain. And this support can be invaluable. So how can we help? We can offer practical support. This may be condition specific, questions around eye health, services, benefits advice, perhaps people are experiencing visual hallucinations and want more information on this 
They might have questions about technology or the latest research. People might be looking for emotional support. We've heard a lot about this earlier today. They might need a listening ear, just someone to talk to. Or actually, they could benefit from structured wellbeing support and our new Discover Wellbeing resource. And then there's the opportunity to make connections. And this cannot be overemphasised. The sense of belonging to a like-minded community, the opportunity to take to others, talk to others who really do understand. And I'd just like to mention at this point that all of our services are free to access and to remind you that they're open to you as professionals who support, as well as those living with these conditions, their families and perhaps colleagues and others who have an interest in our work. If somebody's got a question about inherited sight loss, we're happy to speak to them. So how do we know that we're actually making a difference? We're very proud of our satisfaction levels for our information and support services at Retin UK. In our 22, sir, 2022 survey, 83% of respondents who had accessed our services rated them as excellent or good. We know that we can reduce loneliness, isolation and depression. 52% of those who have not engaged with Retina UK have experienced loneliness. This is compared to 31% of those who have. 49% of those who have not engaged have experienced isolation, compared with 36% who have. And 47% of those who have not engaged have experienced depression, compared with 37% who have. You can trust us to make a difference. We're also a top source of research information. 70% of our survey respondents cite us as their top source. And second is their ophthalmologist at just 27%. So people are coming to us with the information that they need around research activity. I'd now like to take a few moments just to talk you through some of the key services and how you can access them. So I'll start with our website. Um, if you haven't seen it, we have a website, and that's retinauk.org.uk, and there is a wealth of information on there. As Tina mentioned earlier in the day, we are, do have a new website coming in 2023, which is a very exciting project for us now to be working on, as well as a little daunting. Um, and we'll be working extremely hard to ensure that that is fully accessible to all those who come to the site. There's a, a button on the website to sign up to our newsletter and I'd encourage you as professionals and those you support to do that. By signing up to us you'll receive monthly e-newsletters, we've got a specific bulletin for health and social care professionals and another for community members. Um, you'll also receive Look Forward, our regular magazine and just to stress that you can request whichever format works best for you so we're very um, aware of the need to produce content in audio format um, as well as Word documents and PDFs, Braille, whatever people re um, require. Those who have used our newsletters and website um, have told us, um, well, 96% of people told us they were satisfied with that. So that's a, a good percentage to be going into a new website build. Let's hope we can make it 100% when we get to the new one. Our helpline, um, again, as with all of our information support services, manned by our amazing volunteers, um, as I said earlier, they all have their own experience of inherited sight loss. 
So that's available on telephone or via email. Um, the phone lines are open from 9.30 a.m. to 9.30 p.m. Monday to Friday. And of course, people can email at any point. Do please get in touch if you have a question. Um, we're very happy to support you. And the helpline, um, we've just learned the latest survey, we get a 92% satisfaction um, rating for that. Now our talk and support service really is complementary to the helpline and that is a service um, that enables us to have a continued conversation with someone. It might be that their initial point of contact with us is actually through the helpline and then we identify that they would benefit from having a chat on a more regular basis with one of our trained volunteers. Um, it's telephone support really for as long as it's welcomed. Um, might be a, a telephone call once every couple of um, weeks or a month and wherever we can, we will try and match um, the client with a volunteer with shared experience. So it might be, for example, that we have um, a new mum who's received a diagnosis and would like to speak to somebody else who's been in that position. Maybe somebody who's younger, um, perhaps off to university or going into a particular work role that they'd like to speak to somebody again who has similar experiences or it could be um, that they've got experiences around a specific condition. So we will match where we feel able to. Our local peer support groups were traditionally face-to-face um, -face groups, but um, as with many um, services for many organisations, we needed to respond really quickly in the pandemic to ensure that we would aid there and continue to be there for our community to offer the support that they probably needed more than ever. So a number of our local peer support groups moved online. And at the moment, we're continuing with a mix of online meetings and face-to-face, -face, dependent on um, what a particular group would prefer to do. Um, that blend works really well because we have had people that have attended meetings initially online who hadn't got the confidence to come to a face-to-face -face meeting. But having attended and met others, they've now then made some, formed some relationships and built the confidence to come along in person, which is always great to see. We've currently got 15 active groups. I wrote, won't run through them all. The details are on the website. It's an area of um, development for the organisation at the moment. We know it makes a big difference, so we are um, rolling that out to more areas of the country. It's just really an opportunity for others to meet people in their local area. Um, some groups are quite structured and have speakers. Some groups might just go to the pub and have a chat. But it is that opportunity to connect with others with similar experiences, removing the need for somebody to give too much explanation, but just to feel really secure in the environment that they're in. We've recently launched a new national online group as well. So any areas that aren't covered, people are very welcome to come along to that national group. Webinars, that was another new development for the organisation um, during the pandemic. I do look back now and think, crikey, how do we launch so many new things um, in such difficult times? But the webinars and podcasts have proven so popular that we're going to continue with them. Um, the webinars are generally held monthly. We've covered a range of topics, research, technology, sport, condition specific. They're held on Zoom with the ability to, for people to join um, on the phone. If, that, if they would prefer to, and that's more accessible for them. The recordings of all of the webinars um, are available online. So um, even if somebody can't make a meeting at the time, they can watch afterwards. Or quite often people, there's a lot of information to absorb in a short space of time when you attend. People are very welcome to go back, re-watch, share with family and friends if that would be useful. Um, all available through our website. The recordings are on YouTube, or people can access our podcast channel. Um, on Anchor 
FM. And then our events programme, obviously you've joined us for an event today, we have our annual conference for our community tomorrow. We also hold um, information days and this year they will take place in September. All being well, we're heading to Bristol, Oxford, Manchester and Hull. Um, details again on our website. Those events are suitable for anybody with an interest inherited retinals, um, inherited sight loss, be it somebody who's living with a condition or a professional a family member. So please do have a look at those and we'd love you to join us. Again, the recordings go online afterwards, so there is time to, to catch up or to share. Just to mention, with those meetings, we tend to do a blend of research information and information support, the two main pillars of the charity. Unlock Genetics, um, this was um, a new resource that we launched off the back of the findings from our 2019 site loss, where we learned um, that there was a real lack of understanding and information for our community around genetic testing and counselling. We really wanted to respond to that and um, having managed to secure some funding, um, the output from that was Unlock Genetics. The uh, address for that is retinauk.org.uk forward slash genetics. Do have a look, it's a, a unique resource for our community. We worked with numerous experts in the field, including Sean, who is going to uh, join our panel in a moment, to ensure that that really is trustworthy, top-notch information. And the purpose of the site really is to give our community the information they need to be able to make informed choices about their future. So it's not our position as a charity to tell people what they need to know. What we want to do is to be able to provide information in a time and place that suits for people to seek out what is useful for them. As with all of our resources, Unlock Genetics, whilst it predominantly is a web resource, is available in hard copy format, audio format, um, whatever people would prefer. I'm not going to spend much time talking about Discover Wellbeing because we've had a session on that this morning, other than to say we're super proud of it and it has been wonderful to hear so much positive feedback for that resource over the lunch break. So I urge you all, hope you don't crash the site, but I urge you all to have a look um, maybe on your train journey home today or in the very near future. Um, and we'd really welcome feedback on that. And actually that applies to everything we offer at Retina UK. We're continually improving because we're asking for feedback, so please be honest and open with what you share with us because it's only by you doing that that we can do, make the very best, you know, biggest difference that we can um, through continual improvement. And just to stress, as Denise mentioned this morning, there is the opportunity of having a trained volunteer to provide encouragement to individuals as they work through Discover Wellbeing. And then our Facebook support groups. I mentioned earlier the um, benefit of being part of a like-minded community and this is really evident on these groups. Um, we do have moderators but the moderators generally sit back and um, just keep a watchful eye on the conversations that are happening because this really is a safe space for those affected by inherited sight loss to have the conversations they want to have with each other online at a time that suits them and really it's about offering peer-to-peer -peer mutual support within the community. So that's a whistle-stop tour of the information support services that we offer. To so say there's lots more information on the stands, come and speak to the team or go away and have a look. We'll share more information with you when we um, communicate with you after the event today so you can have a look at those resources. 
So I'm really delighted this afternoon that we're uh, joined by members of our community to come and talk to us about their experience of um, using the services. So we, really you can gain some understanding and insight into the impact. Um, so I'd like to invite uh, Bavini, Sean and Denise to come and join me. Thank you. Um, Sean, could I ask you to introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Sean Sparing. I'm a genetic counsellor based at the Oxford Eye Hospital. Um, I know there's been quite a bit of mention about genetic counselling and genetic testing today, but I just thought it might be helpful for me to just summarise what I do, just for those that maybe aren't so familiar. Um, so genetic counselling is the process in which we investigate um, individuals or their families that are at risk or living with um, a genetic disorder. So that kind of ranges from providing information about the science, kind of genetic side of things, to providing emotional support through the process of genetic testing, getting the results, and what the implications then are for the wider family. Thank you. Bavini, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, um, I'm Bavini McCona. I live with retinitis pigmentosa. Um, I'm a volunteer and a group facilitator for Retina UK and their ambassador. I work for London Vision as their engagement manager and I'm also the chair of Bain Vision. Very busy lady. <laughs> <laughs> Denise. I'm not sure I can follow that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Denise and I'm, the, I'm one of the information and support managers at Retina UK. Thank you. Um, Bavini, you've mentioned that um, you volunteer with us um, and I know that in the past you've also used um, Retina UK's information and support services. I wondered if you could um, just tell us a little bit about how you first came into contact with the charity and what that experience was like for you. Yeah, so um, I was diagnosed with RP in 1997, so I was just 17. And at the point of diagnosis, um, I was just told that you'll go blind, there's, there's no cure, there's no treatment, and that was basically it. I could lose my sight in a matter of years, it could be months or weeks, there was just no information, and that news literally turned my whole world upside down. I, I didn't even know what RP was, I couldn't even say the word retinitis pigmentosa back then, and I'd never come across any blind or partially sighted person. So you can imagine the kind of, uh, for the next kind of 14, almost 15 years, I never knew anything about a sight loss charity, a local society, ECLOs, rehabs, nothing. Not, not, nothing was signposted to me. And it was by accident that I was sitting in my um, eye hospital and my husband noticed a poster being put up and he saw the word retinitis pigmentosa on there. He went to go and look at it and Retina UK um, were gonna be speaking at an event and we soon booked on and yeah, 15 years later, I came across the charity and I registered with them, became a member and started um, looking into all the different things they were offering. Um, I attended one of their kind of, uh, group meetings um, in London and that was literally the first time since my diagnosis, I met somebody else 
with the same eye condition as me, uh, and not only that, someone my age that I could talk to, that could relate to me. I, I was a mum and all the kind of struggles I went through, bring, just trial and error, you know, what's, what's working for me, how to do things differently, bringing up my girls. I could talk to somebody else who could relate. So it, I, it was by accident that I came across Retina UK, uh, almost 15 years later my, after my diagnosis. I think that's, I mean, it's fantastic that you found the charity, but really, really disappointing to hear that it was by accident. And I think that's something that we can't stress enough today. Please let people know that we exist because actually don't assume that they do or that somebody's already had that conversation. Um, Bavini, you also volunteer facilitator of our London peer support group. Um, can you tell us a little about that experience, um, both from your perspective and um, yeah, what, what, what happens at the groups and how you see the benefits? Yeah, so I mean, I started volunteering for Retinique on their helpline and I became their group facilitator about a couple of years ago. And it, it has been a tremendous experience. I mean, I, I took over the group just as COVID occurred. So we started online meetings and we range, we started ranging from about 20 to 25 people attending um, and we had different speakers come along. But we also have time for people just to ask questions, just to sort of say, this is what I'm going through. Can anyone share information about how they're going through it? It could be that they want to just sort of share something new that they've come across. So we have that opportunity to learn something. So some of our group members really love the medical research or the medical side of it. So we try and arrange the speakers. So their medical range, service provision, it could be technology, anything that the group members want. And we also allow time for people just to connect and network. And, you know, some of the other kind of work that I'm involved with through my, you know, my role at London Vision, when I speak to other people and get them to, you know, I, I tell them about the group. <coughs> Some people might be apprehensive and I said there's no pressure to even say anything you can just sit and listen you can just sit and just take note and if you feel comfortable in saying something that's fine and if you don't then there's no pressure to and we've heard great feedback that they love that you know they love the speaker side of it the information side but also just to relate to other people and just ask questions this is what I'm struggling with how do others cope? So just sharing of information, um, that's been really great. And I think there's something there about the importance of, with you know, all of us in our professional roles um, have got expertise in specific areas, but we may not have that lived experience. Some of us might, but others may not have that lived experience. And actually, to be able to use the services of Retina UK in a complementary way for the services you provide, Hopefully that's an opportunity to, to enable those connections to happen. Thank you, Bivini. We will, we will have uh, time for questions for Bivini at the end. Um, Sean, we were very fortunate to have you as our expert reviewer on our Unlock Genetics website, um, acknowledging that we don't have all the expertise um, for that within Retina UK. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about your experience of, of working on the project with us. Yeah, it was a real privilege for me to, to kind of work with Retina UK on that. I think 
as it's been mentioned a couple of times, it was recognised in that survey back in 2019 that there was a group of people who weren't getting the information about genetic testing and genetic counselling. Um, and we weren't seeing those people because the people who come to us in clinic obviously have, have reached that point. So it was really important for us to work alongside Retina UK to make sure that we were kind of meeting that unmet kind of need and providing accurate information for people to then make the decision and make an accurate and informed choice about taking genetic testing forward or coming to come into a genetics clinic. Thank you. And it's really important to us that we do involve expert reviewers um, as well as community reviewers in the information resources that we develop. So each of our key projects will identify a group of community reviewers and the professionals and all of the information we produce will go through a process to ensure that it's had eyes on it um, those different perspectives, but really important perspectives um, on the information that we produce. Um, I wonder whether you could just talk to us about how you use Unlock Genetics sort of in your role and how useful that's been. Yeah, it's been a really helpful resource for us to, I guess, signpost our patients to. Um, the point of diagnosis is quite an overwhelming moment for, for our patients and they get a lot of information from the consultants, they get a lot of information from a genetic counsellor if there's a genetic counsellor available. Um, and so having something that they can go away with, uh, whether that be a printed handout that we can provide for them or just direct them to the website, um, we know that we're sending them away with accurate information that they can look back on when they're not as overwhelmed or um, they can share with their family members that we know that everyone's getting the correct information. Um, so it's been really helpful for us to know that after they leave the clinic, they're still able to access that information if, if and when they need to. Thank you. Um, and we talked about Unlock Genetics, but have you signposted to other services from Retina UK? Yeah, so as a general rule, any patient that we have that's um, diagnosed with an inherited sight loss, we would signpost to a number of different charities, including Retina UK. Um, you know, we recognise that there's only so much that we can do at the point of diagnosis. Um, and not only do they need the kind of the genetic information, but they also need this other support services the Retina UK provide, including things like this, the events, and um, just having support from people who have that lived experience. You know, in the clinic, we, as much experience as we have with working with people with that lived experience, we, we're living with sight, and so we don't necessarily have that same perspective that some of the support and volunteer that through Retina UK can provide. And I, I really like the, the fact that you brought up you know, that an appointment can be overwhelming. I'm sure we've all had different appointments in our own lives where actually afterwards you think, oh, I wish I'd asked that, or what about this? And it, it can all be a bit of a blur, can't it? Particularly when it's difficult information to take in. So the opportunity to be able to go away with something in your hand or certainly signposted to a resource to, to follow up on. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> Denise, so um, we're very fortunate to have you leading on our helpline service. Um, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the types of um, calls that we receive or emails that we receive, the type of contact that we, we have through the service. Absolutely. I mean, first of all, you know, the, the service is, it's easy to lead on when you've got such an amazing team of volunteers behind us. And um, we've always had um, a lot of, of calls across a breadth of subjects. And um, what we've seen in the last two years is that it, the sort of shift, there's been a shift. So we've always had calls um, about uh, daily living things have, have always been a big thing for us. Um, everything from um, somebody's about to buy a new cooker. It's like, what, what, 
what can you suggest for me to future-proof this cooker? You know, sort of other things that I should think about and things I should look out for. Um, technology, uh, mobility, you know, cane training, what tints and glasses, all of those type of, of areas or queries. Um, we get a lot of questions that are condition-specific, wanting to know more uh, about uh, the condition that somebody's living with, what to expect in the future. Um, research has always been a big, a big area, wanting to know about research. And whilst we've always had um, calls that, callers that need emotional support, we've seen a, a big, big increase in that area in the last two years. Um, people that really, you know, sometimes, sometimes they're calling with a very basic question, but when you ask, how are you actually doing day to day? How are you managing with that? it's very clear very quickly that actually what they need is a listening ear they need somebody to talk to and then you have people that actually call us in a state of distress you know that they've been through something that um that they're just not handling very well that it, it may be taking a dip in their in their sight you know that their sight has deteriorated or, or actually at diagnosis um, that there was one um lady that we spoke to quite recently um, it, was, it was actually a family member, and we do encourage family members, um, you know, friends and colleagues to call as well. You know, it's not just the person who's living with the condition. But she called us because her husband had been diagnosed with RP, and um, during the diagnosis, it was a local hospital, so probably an ophthalmologist that didn't come across the condition very often, um, but was basically told um, not to have any more children. I mean. They stopped and said, well, what, what do you mean? And said, do you have children at the moment? And they said, yes, we've got two. He said, I'm glad about that because you shouldn't have any more unless you want to watch them go blind. Needless to say, the young lady phoned. She was, the first 10 minutes of the call was actually just her crying. And she said, while she was really, really concerned about her husband and, and the impact that it has having on him, actually, they were planning another baby. And it was extremely distressing to her that the fact that that dream was being taken away and in such a blunt manner. And as well as being a listening ear that she definitely needed, we were able to talk through, um, you know, the options available that actually what she should do was go along and speak to a genetic counsellor. Um, that could explain about the condition. They could look at what the chances, the inheritance patterns, the chances of passing on the condition to any future children, and actually what their options are, because there are options, you know, and there are options available. And she needed to be able to go and talk that through with somebody with all the right knowledge and, and experience. None of that had been discussed at all. It, the message has just been given and off she went. So that, that type of thing is a big deal. And again, it's, it's equipping people with the information and the knowledge that they need to go away and, and you know, get that, make those informed choices, isn't it? If you don't know the, if you don't have the information, then you're not in a position to do that. Um, and as you've just mentioned, we, we regularly signpost on. So whilst we're asking professionals to signpost to us for support, um, if it's something that we feel is outside of our remit or our expertise, we've got vast numbers of contacts that we would then signpost people onto and usually follow up with them as well just to check that that's, that's working out for them. How do you see the helpline fitting in with the support provided by other professionals and other charities? Because obviously we work in quite a, a busy sector, there's a number of charities available. How, how do we fit in there, Denise? 
I think the only way that we support the people out there that are living with our conditions is for us as a sector to work together. Um, we have to come together as a sector. It's like, to me, when you do maintenance on a house, you know, you need some jobs, you need a screwdriver, some jobs you need a hammer. If you need a job that requires a hammer, a screwdriver isn't going to do it, and vice versa. You need all of the tools in the toolkit to be able to carry out the jobs you need, and so do people. They need to know about all of us and the support that we can all offer in a different way. And by referring to each other whenever they need it, it might not be right now, it may be further down the line, but when they need it, they need to know that the support is there. And by complementing each other, that's what's making a difference. I think probably worth mentioning at that point, sort of even in our day-to-day -day activity, we have a lot of involvement with other uh, charities, other uh, visual impairment charities, sector partners. So, for example, when we um, made the, the fairly bold decision to develop Discover Wellbeing, we were very mindful of what else is already in existence. You know, we, we knew there was a need, but we also wanted to ensure that whatever we developed as a charity complemented what else was out there. So there are services, as Denise mentioned earlier, from RNIB, for example. There's no point in us doing what exactly what RNIB are doing. So how could we do something that would complement those services? So we, you know, we work collaboratively, we work in partnership, understanding who is best placed. What we do absolutely recognise is sometimes it needs to be written in the UK. Sometimes it needs to be specific to inherited sight loss conditions as opposed to sight loss in general. And I'm sure everybody in the room will appreciate why that's so important. Um, can we just touch on the talk and support service, Denise, and, and who might benefit from that? Yeah, absolutely. I think for anybody who's feeling um, maybe a little bit isolated, uh, particularly over the last two years, people who just want to build up, maybe need to open up a little bit more, maybe need to build a, re a relationship with somebody on an ongoing basis, um, somebody that's that they can open up and trust. Perhaps family, you know, someone who isn't able to open up to their family members in quite the same way. Um, because a lot of people are frightened of upsetting their family if they're, you know, if they're feeling concerned or anxious. They don't want to upset their family members, so they keep it bottled up. But it's a safe place, you know, to be able to build a relationship and talk to someone on a regular basis. Um, someone that's got similar experience to them, similar interests to them. Um, you know, it's, it's not only to talk about the sight loss, but it, it's a, a way that a safe place that you can do that. So I, I, any of those people would really benefit. I've actually got a quote from somebody actually who um, very recently wrote in to us uh, about some talk and support. I'll just share this with you. Um, the, the email, when diagnosed with RP, I thought that that was me finished, but I feel I can now achieve much more than I ever imagined. I still have a way to go, but you helped me see that there's no weakness in what we got and that it doesn't define us at all. So thank you again for helping me to change the way of thinking and pulling me out of a dark place. Fate would have it that you were the one that got to speak to me and you did help and encourage me to step up and take action. Thank you. Really that makes a difference. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, and I, I guess, Pavini, that this is a, a similar kind of thing that you hear at your local peer support group. Yeah, absolutely. Um, especially if they're joining for the first time, because it, it literally could have been the first time that they're being, be it virtually, um, in a room with other people that can understand. 
and especially where they ask me to sort of share my experiences and they can relate, especially if they're also going through cultural issues, like, you know, some of the stigmas attached to disability in different communities. They don't have anyone to speak to or anyone that can understand, especially if sight loss um, is not in their family. So the, the, the chance of increased isolation and mental health, you know, further increases. So those kind of comments, I remember one that joined um, the virtual session back in February. He's in his 70s and he's been living with RP since he was 30, 32. And he said that I've never ever spoken to anyone and it was just so good to share and listen to other people that were going through what I had been through and I just thought it was just me, so most definitely. Again, to the point that was made earlier, there is no set pathway. This isn't just about a point of diagnosis. Point of diagnosis is a significant impact and is a really important time for people to receive support. But actually, many in our community um, won't reach out until much further into their journey with sight loss. I mean, there's an example of somebody who many, many years later, it might just be that something has happened in somebody's life, whether it's a deterioration in their sight, a change in circumstances at home, and actually they then feel ready. So we need to continue to have the conversation with people about the support available and not assume that maybe 10 years, 15 years, at any point in their journey, that they've already had this information or they've already chosen to engage. Um, so we just need to keep checking in with people, I suppose, really. Um, Denise, we're fortunate to be joined by um, a broad range of professionals today. How can the professionals benefit? Because we've talked quite a lot about how those living with can benefit from accessing our services. But what about the professionals that are providing support? What, what can we do there? Well, other than days like today, <laughs> uh, you know, and we'd love to see you guys um, face to face. It's a, it's a great opportunity. But it's, you know, it's all of our services. You know, we have a lot of professionals do contact our helpline. Um, and we encourage it, you know, if you've got a specific question about how to support someone, we've had to, uh, calls from teachers, you know, who are supporting somebody and they just want to check in with something, sense check something, um, to just make sure that they're supported in the best way. Uh, any questions that you've got that are condition specific that you're just not 100% sure of, we're happy to try and answer if, uh, you know, if we can. Um, our information days, you know, they are open to all of our professionals, colleagues. It's a lovely way of, of getting together and meeting sector partners in a local area, hearing from local speakers, um, and having a chance to engage with families. You know, it's, it's another way to get out there and talking to people without your normal hat on, if that makes sense. So it's a bit more relaxed, because um, you're not on the spot. Uh, you know, the, the, we. We also have, as, as Paula said, you know, sort of the e-news and things like that, but we actually have a professional's e-bulletin that's specifically for you guys. It comes out a few times a year, and we try and share with you as much information as we can that we think will help you be interested to you and to support the families that you're, you're supporting. So if you're not already signed up to that, please come and, and see us over at the stand and, and uh, ask to sign up to that. Resource, um, it's really evident to us that the conversation isn't often happening with community um, from the medical professionals that they're seeing. I guess we don't really know why that is, whether it's not felt to be a relevant 
conversation or whether maybe they don't feel fully equipped to have the conversation. I don't know whether you have a view on why it might be and, um, and how useful the resource would be in, in that situation. I think it, in Oxford we're really lucky that as a genetic counsellor I'm embedded into that clinic but that's not the situation in, in most eye hospitals or most clinics that, that our patients are getting to see. So, um, and you know, again, in Oxford, we have a number of consultants who are experts in genetics. If you're going to your local kind of hospital, then that expertise might not feel, be as strong, or they might not feel as comfortable going through that information, as well as kind of the time restraints that kind of everyone in the NHS is under. Um, so I guess it's really important that the professionals know that these resources are available. If they don't feel comfortable given that information, that they can signpost and then. You know, within the NLOC um, genetics website, there is um, a list of where kind of you can signpost people to specialist eye clinics, um, and so that then hopefully will open up those referrals to get people to the right place. And again, not everybody needs to know it all. You just need to know where to signpost people to for the information. Thank you. Um, I think we've got time for some questions, so do pop your hand up if you've got questions for any of us. If you're in the room, or um, I think. Somebody will put any questions to us that are coming from online. Um, hi, this is a question for Sean. Um, I deal with patients and families sometimes who basically really don't want to go down the route of genetic counselling. I'm, I'm an ECLO working in an eye clinic. And whilst obviously it's not my job to convince them, how would you explain in very layman's terms to them what is genetic counselling? What are the benefits? for them either now or in the future in a really easy, friendly way of doing it so that they can at least go away and think about it in a really measured way. Yeah, I think it's not uncommon for people to really kind of get their walls up as soon as you bring up genetic testing. You know, I think it's got some um, quite complex and historical kind of meanings behind it. And so um, genetic counsel, have, going to a genetic clinic and going to genetic counsel doesn't mean that you have to have genetic testing. Um, a lot of people will come to us just to have that information given. So it's going somewhere where you're getting accurate information that is um, specific to that person. So everyone's going to be slightly different. And so it's really helpful to see a genetic counsellor so they can discuss your individual circumstances. There's no pressure from a genetic counsellor to have genetic testing. And there's absolutely no um, kind of, you turn up, you, don't have, you can come as many times as you want before you make your mind up. Um, I think the term genetic counselling can be quite intimidating for some people who don't feel that they need counselling. Um, it's just explaining that we're just there to provide information and to try and support them to make an informed choice that's right for them in their particular circumstance. Hi, it's Devinder from RNB. Sean, you touched on a point there that I just wanted to, you mentioned about the title of genetic counselling, and we know language is quite powerful. Um, when that term was approached to me, I think it gives a lot of people the impression it's counselling. So I just wondered, has anyone thought about the barrier that people misunderstand the service? And is there scope to maybe think of maybe an alternative title so people may think it's genetic identification or, you know, just because I think there is a barrier sometimes people think, is that for them? Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. I think um, I, I don't know if there's been any work done on on kind of the kind of 
mass opinion of that, but there definitely is, as people will come to see me, will say, oh, I don't need counselling. And it's one of the first things I'll do is explain that it's not counselling in any kind of therapeutic model. Um, so I think it, it would be something important for us to think of in future in terms of how we access those people who are maybe put off by that title. Um, there's lots of changes in the world of genetics and um, the roles are, are, are changing a bit with the type of genetic testing that we're doing now. So um, there isn't anything that's changing at the moment, but it's definitely something to keep in mind. that is a real benefit of talking to people on our helpline. If there's anybody who's not sure about it, a lot of people on our helpline have actually got first-hand experience of being through that. They can explain in very clear terms what it is and what it isn't to just help put somebody's mind at rest. And obviously the Unlock Genetics um, information on the website is, it goes into a lot of detail. So hopefully that will help, you know, sort of in the meantime, <laughs> while people are deciding what it's going to be called. That's one of the reasons it's so important when we create new information resources that we do involve the community. So one of the things was, did they understand the language we were using? So we need to use the term genetic counselling because that's the one they're likely to hear at their, their medical appointments. If they do hear it, hopefully they do. But actually when they come to the site, we explain in, in lay language what that actually means. Um, but it's, the tricky, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because if they're hearing that language, is that a barrier and how do we break that down? But we need to also be using it so people make the connection between the two things. Thank you. Have we got any more questions? I think we've perhaps got some questions from um, online. Yeah. A question to say, um, what is actually the best way to refer to Retina UK? What's the best channel to put people through to start with? Anybody can email services at retinauk.org.uk and that'll come through. There's a number of the whole team, um, Matt, myself and Mark, all monitor that inbox. So somebody will be able to, um, to accept that referral and, and point it in the right direction. And then Denise, can you just explain what would happen once you re receive that referral? Absolutely. So um, one of the team will actually make contact. We'll, we'll first of all go back to the person who's make, making the referral um, if it's necessary or, or, or thank you for it if you've given enough information. Um, we will then make contact with the individual to make sure that we've got all the information we need to understand in a little bit more detail the ways that we can help, what their expectations are, what their individual situation is um, and make sure that what is being referred into, because there, there may be actually be more than one of our services that would benefit. So we can talk through the different things that are available and tailor the service to that individual. Thank you. Got a couple more questions in the room, one at the front, one at the back. Thank you. Hello, Debbie Malone speaking. Um, it's um, for Sean. Uh, how would someone go about if they did want to have genetic counselling or, um, you know, find out of, um, whether it can be passed on to their children? How would they go about um, seeing someone like yourself? So, um, so you'd be referred by your GP. Um, genetic counselling works in in, in, in a couple of different ways. So I specifically specifically work within the Oxford Eye Hospital. So 
within, in Oxford, we would receive referrals through the genetics clinic in the eye hospital. But that service isn't necessarily available across the UK, so some people would go through a clinical genetics department. So your, um, your best protocol is to go to your GP who would know what the services are available in your area. And like I mentioned on the Unlock um, Genetics website, there's a, um, a drop-down menu that then says about all the different services that are available, so you can just look up your area and it will say who to refer to. Um, there's the GP or your consultant ophthalmologist, if they're not comfortable with doing genetic testing and genetic counselling, can refer to a specialist service like Oxford, Manchester, London. I'm just taking my instructions from Matt. Are we taking one more question? Thank you. Um, hi, it's Trisha Woldy from Oldham again. Um, just wondering when you said about we referring to yourselves and people ring, have you got information? for referring on to local authorities and other support that is around for people who, again, as you say, may not be ready right now, but might, do you know what's in your area anyway, that when you're ready, you can make contact yourself, maybe not have to go through us again or through Retina UK to make that, can pass on information from you to individuals, how they can access support in their own area. Sorry, um, so, can we pass on, sorry, I didn't quite catch, catch the beginning of the question. At the end of it, I was wondering whether it made sense myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if somebody rings you for support and information, yeah. have you the information that you can pass on to that person about what's available in their area, what's local, and how they can, what type of support they can access and how? Um, Depending on what it is, so when we have that initial conversation, we're very much about finding out what it is that, that they're looking for. Um, we will try and follow that up. So there's a lot of information that perhaps might be given during that conversation. So we will always try and follow it up with an email, um, providing links or telephone numbers. We will look what's available in that person's local, or, you know, local area. So the local site loss charity. Is a, is a place that you know they do great work you know on the ground right there for the person so that um, information is usually included in that email and then we would encourage them to keep in touch with our helplines because there may be things that they haven't thought of right now within that conversation that they need you know sort of they think of you know six weeks down the line or anything just to keep in touch with us come back to us if there's more that they're interested in and we'll always try and find out the answers for them thank you Denise I think we are now out of time, so hopefully that's given you an overview of how we work at Retina UK. Um, the information support service is available to both yourselves and those you support, and a bit of insight into um, the difference it can make if you do signpost on. So uh, thank you very much, everybody. Thank you, Davini, Sean, and Denise. Okay, good afternoon for the last session. Um, Okay, last session, last push. Um, I won't say we saved the best for last, but we have something very exciting for you now. Um, so just to let you know, so well, just to let you know, feedback um, is always at the centre of what we do at Retina UK. Following the success of the last two professional conferences, we've listened to all of your feedback. Um, and one thing that we've seen over and over is people asking to learn more about the conditions that we support, how it impacts people, um, what the symptoms may be, what the current research is. Um, so you've asked for it, 
and we're going to deliver. Um, we have with us um, this afternoon um, Sandra Silver. Sam is a consultant ophthalmologist um, at Oxford um, Eye Hospital. Um, she has a number of accolades. She has more letters than the DNA code itself that comes after her name. Um, and she's a huge, huge, um, huge part of some of the work that we do. So um, get your questions ready. If you're at home with your questions, remember to put them in the Q&A. Pop your hands up at the end um, when we do our Q&A session and um, listen and enjoy. So, Sandra Silva. Thank you. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here today, this afternoon, and in person, finally, after a, a long time when we've been all sitting at home behind our computers. So I've been given the mammoth title of Types of Inherited Sight Loss, Features, Impact, Research, um, which is probably everything we know about inherited retinal disease in an hour. So I'll try to keep it as simple as possible um, and to stick to the sort of key points and give you an overview of um, these conditions. Uh, but of course, I'm happy to answer questions at the end uh, if you have more specific things you'd like me to elaborate on or um, further details. So the, the title I was given was on inherited sight loss. And I think the first thing is to highlight that there are many types of inherited sight loss. So, you know, there are many childhood um, disorders, ocular developmental abnormalities, so the, the eye not forming properly, so a small eye microphthalmia or not forming at all. Um, the cornea can be affected, so corneal dystrophies. Uh, you can get congenital cataract that's inherited, inherited forms of glaucoma and optic neuropathies. But the fo focus of this talk will be inherited retinal disease, um, but I just wanted to sort of set the context in, in that there are many other forms of inherited sight loss um, for who, which, who we see in our community as well. So to go back to basics for those who um, may not have thought about anatomy of the eye ever or for a long time. So if you imagine the eye really is a bit like a camera and the back of that camera is lined by a camera film called the retina, which picks up the picture and um, captures it for us to be able to interpret. And the light sensing cells at the back of the eye that do that job are the rods and the cones predominantly. And so these cells capture the light and turn that into an electrical signal, which is then passed through the retina, up the optic nerve and to the brain. And ultimately it's the brain that makes us see, that interprets that visual signal. So in a healthy retina, we have a nice, healthy layer of the, um, what are the blue cells that are on the, the image that you can see, rods and cones. Um, whereas in inherited retinal degenerations, there's usually a genetic change, either in the rods or the cones or the cells that support those, the RPE, which leads to progressive um, degeneration, so loss of those cells, ultimately leading to visual impairment and in, in some patients, uh, legal blindness. So one thing I wanted to try and address or talk a bit about is how we characterize these disorders or how we name them, because you probably 
have seen conflicting things or differing things in letters from clinics or um, diagnoses. Someone might have a diagnosis of RP, someone else might call it a rod cone dystrophy, someone else might be said to have, you know, a, been given a genetic um, diagnosis like ABCA4, um, or someone else might have a, a syndromic condition like Usher syndrome. So how do these things all fit together? And ultimately, it is confusing. So, you know, um, it's confusing for everyone. So don't be um, worried if you find these terms difficult to understand and interpret. So to try and set the context, I just wanted to go back a, a step. I won't give you too much of a history lesson, but just to try and understand how we've, you know, how these um, diagnoses or these conditions have been uh, discovered and why these terms have been given to them. So. We can classify these terms basically on, in three ways. One is by description, so description of what they look like and how they affect our patients. The second is function, so how they affect the function of the retina. And thirdly, by genetic diagnosis. So these descriptions have been around for a long time. So the first description of RP was in 1853, this ophthalmologist Van Tricht used a very primitive ophthalmoscope to look through the pupil. And actually, that, the picture you can see at the top is his original drawing of what he saw. And, you, and it's actually pretty accurate in terms of being able to visualize the changes within the retina, sort of more than 170, well, nearly 170 years ago now. And it was um, a few years later that the term retinitis pigmentosa, or RP, was coined. So really, that stayed with us all this time, even though in 1857, nobody really knew you know, what the underlying disease was or how you know, the, the actual mechanism of it. They just could tie together the symptoms and this retinal appearance. Again, around the same time, the diagnosis of Leber's congenital amaurosis was given, and this was um, uh, a description of a blind child with nystagmus, amaurotic or non-reactive pupils, and congenital RP. But the disease, even though it was described back in the 1860s, the disease was only named in 1957. At a similar time, choroideremia was, was named. Um, so Another ophthalmologist looked through, again, just purely with a, a direct ophthalmoscope and saw this different appearance at the back of the eye where the retin and the choroid all seemed to have uh, degenerated or disappeared. And they called that choroideremia, barren choroid. Um, and finally, Stargardt's disease. So a little bit later, when we had a little bit more understanding, this ophthalmologist, Carl Stargardt, described an autosomal recessive macular dystrophy with characteristic appearance of flex that we know at the retina. So you can see that all these diagnoses were given purely on the basis of description. We didn't really understand at this stage, you know, 100, 150 years ago, much more than that, but we could see a constellation of symptoms and tie that up with a, an appearance of the retina. So then we jump forward about another sort of 50 or um, 60 years to the 1940s, 1950s, where we started to do electroretinography, or ERGs, um, more routinely. They had been around for a while, but um, they became more sort of in clinical practice at that time. This picture I've stolen from uh, Omar Maru's website. You, many of you may know him. He's an um, inherited retinal disease specialist at Moorfields. And it, illustrating how 
the ERG is done. So basically, you place electrodes across the cornea and use um, uh, stimulate the, um, the retina using, well, show pictures that can either stimulate certain groups of cells. If you do that in dim light, you can stimulate the rods. If you do it in bright light, you can stimulate the cones. Or if you use a certain pattern, you can stimulate the macular region. And so really, at this point, or sort of soon after, once we understood how the different populations of cells in the retina function, you then get this next sort of wave of classification of these disorders. So rod cone dystrophies, where the ERG shows that the rods are more affected than cones. Uh, cone or cone rod dystrophy, where the cones are more affected than rods. And macular dystrophy, where the macula or the central part of the retina is predominantly affected, but the, the peripheral retina is, is less so. And these are all diagnoses based on ERGs. So that's where this terminology comes from. And then we move on to genetics. So mechanisms of inheritance have been known about for a long time since, again, sort of the 1860s seems to have been this golden time of discovery in medicine. Um, so since then, we've known about autosomal dominant, autosomal recessive disease, and more recently X-linked to mitochondrial disease. But it's really in the last 30 years that this explosion of genetics has happened. And so we go from you know, the early 90s, where very few genes were known that were responsible for inherited retinal diseases, to you know, um, the current time, where we know that nearly 300 different genes are responsible for these conditions. And this has given us a huge amount of knowledge, both in terms of understanding why uh, these, these genetic um, these, you know, diseases occur, but also how they can be different and how they can manifest differently. But then what we see is that there isn't a direct correlation between those descriptive diagnoses and these genetic diagnoses. And so, for example, RPGR, um, so that's the gene that's responsible in predominantly for X-linked RP, can also cause a cone rod dystrophy. Stargardt's disease, which is most commonly a macular dystrophy, can also cause an RP-like picture. And so that's why you tend to see multiple different diagnoses on patients' letters, where they might say ABCA4 macular dystrophy, because you're trying to not only delineate the genetic cause of that disorder, but also give an idea of the pattern of disease and how that individual might be affected and that sort of guides how, you know, what support they might need, the, the support um, for someone with peripheral visual loss is, of course, different to someone with, with central visual loss. So this is why we have a number of different terms which are sometimes complementary um, and they have overlapping um, disorders related to these genes. Sometimes we know why a particular gene um, manifest differently. So, for example, for the RPGR gene, we know that if the genetic change is at one end um, of the gene, the three-primed end, that tends to manifest more as a cone or cone rod dystrophy. And if it's at the other end, it's more likely to be RP. But other times we don't know, and that's ongoing research that needs to be done to try and understand why these conditions manifest differently. Um, this is an idea of the um, the spectrum of genes and, and their frequency. So this is data published in 2020 of the 4,000 patients seen at Moorfield. And you can see the most common gene by far is the ABCA4, which affected more than 650 patients in, in that group 
The second most common gene is USH2A, uh, both in terms of an isolated RP or as part of a, a, a syndromic diagnosis. And then RPGR is the third. But you have many, these are the top 20, but you have many more genes that have been implicated in these disorders. So I just wanted to sort of go through some of the key diagnoses or key conditions. Um, again, trying to keep things as, as simple as possible, but you know, giving you some relevant information. So I, every ophthalmologist finds different things useful, to be honest, but I quite like this electrophysiological categorization of rod cone, cone rod, and macular dystrophy, because it tells you not only, um, you know, it's not an umbrella, it is an umbrella diagnosis, but it does tell you a bit more about how that retina is being affected and what symptoms might manifest. So rod cone dystrophy is reasonably interchangeable with the diagnosis of RP um, or the name RP. And uh, as we know, um, many of our patients are affected by night vision problems and peripheral vision problems first. And later, um, in some patients, their central vision remains unaffected or later may develop central visual loss as well. Um, the traditional description is of tunnel vision, which is, is true to an extent, but actually many patients have far peripheral vision that remains intact, which they can use for navigation. And we know these conditions have a very variable phenotype. So sometimes their onset is in childhood and can be quite rapidly progressing. Other times the onset can be in late adulthood. Um, and we also see this phenomenon of variable penetrance where, or incomplete penetrance, where someone has that genetic change but actually doesn't manifest the disease at all. And that's again something we don't understand exactly how that works at present. So part of this variability can be um, explained by the genetic cause, and some of it is, like I said, still unknown. So we know that in these conditions, there are three main modes of inheritance. Um, you do also see mitochondrial, but that's much smaller. So autosomal dominant RP accounts for around a quarter, about 25% of, of our patient group, um, with the, the commonest uh, genes being listed here, so rhodopsin, RP1, PRPF31. Um, autosomal recessive RP probably accounts for the biggest proportion. Uh, the commonest gene for that is USH2A, uh, EYS um, is also seen. And it's these, which gene is more frequent is also dependent on the population. So in different populations, you'll see a different distribution of, of these genetic changes. And X-linked RP, um, most commonly due to RPGR, and the other gene implicated in this is, is RP2. So as well as seeing the, the, ret, um, the primary retinal changes in, in these conditions, it's also important to look for other ocular uh, features which are potentially treatable. So we know that patients with RP uh, often have um, significant refractive errors, so they may be highly short-sighted, myopic, or very long-sighted, hypermetropic, which can be um, treated with glasses. So, and especially in children, that's really important because if that refractive error is left untreated, they can develop lazy eyes on top of their, uh, or, you know, of the underlying RP or inherited retinal disease. So it's important that, um, well, everyone, but especially children, are seen to, 
to uh, diagnose and treat refractive error and patch, you know, amblyopia treatment, so lazy eyes, patch lazy eyes if, as and when needed. We know that patients with RP are more likely to develop cataracts, so it's important that they're seen not necessarily by a, a genetic centre, but either by an optometrist or their local ophthalmologist once a year or every couple of years to check for cataract. Um, and also, there can be swelling of the retina that we call cystoid macular edema. So this scan is an OCT scan, which is now quite commonly used and is actually available in many op optometry practices as well. It uses infrared light to scan through the retina and you can see the, the swelling of the retina on, on OCT scans. Um, and that can be treated to a certain degree with drops, sometimes tablets, um, which can help to um, stabilize vision. If, it, if it's due to the, the macular edema that's, that's caused a change in vision. So it's important that we, um, these, can, that these treatable aspects of the, the, the disease are also addressed um, and patients uh, understand that. There's also this spectrum of syndromic RP, which can get quite complicated, but I just wanted to highlight that um, the diagnosis of RP can either just affect the eyes or the genetic change can be in a gene that affects multiple systems. So, for example, Usher's syndrome, we know the Usherin protein is not just expressed in the retina, but it's also effect, uh, expressed in the inner ear. And so some of our patients will have Usher's syndrome uh, that encompasses hearing loss and um, RP or glaucoma dystrophy, whereas others will have isolated disease. Um, and actually for ushers, we do, it's one of the conditions that we do understand why that happens. So um, there are certain genetic changes that are retina specific and if you have, ushers um, is, a, is, is an autosomal recessive condition, so you need two affected copies of the gene to manifest disease. So if both of those affected copies or one of those affected copies just has a retina specific genetic change, that tends to be non-syndromic, manifest as non-syndromic RP. Whereas if those, it, um, the genes affected more widely, that manifests as Usher syndrome with, associated with hearing loss or Usher type two. Um, Usher type one is a slightly different condition. Um, you also have a number of other um, syndromic disorders where RP is a feature of a wider disease. And these patients need to be under the care of um, either clinical geneticists or general physicians who understand the range of conditions that they might um, need you know, to have monitored, such as some conditions are associated with kidney disease, some are associated with heart disease, some with peripheral nerve changes. And so it's important that you know, all of those aspects are managed. And there are some specific centers in the UK that, that look after these groups of patients. So choroideremia, I've put here, although it's um, a slightly different, of course, to, to its classical RP. Um, this is an X-linked condition, so an, um, an X-linked recessive condition. It's quite rare, uh, but we know increasingly more about it because of the gene therapy studies that have been ongoing over the last few years. So again, this group of patients experience a progressive loss of night vision um, and peripheral visual field loss. 
but they actually maintain a very small island of central retina until very late in the disease. So, um, so technically, we see patients who have a very good visual acuity, um, even in their 50s or 60s, even though they have very little uh, peripheral uh, visual field to rely on. Um, and that's related to the choroid remid CHM gene encoding the REP1 protein. Another sort of group of conditions um, is that, that those that have an early onset. So Labour's congenital amaurosis, and you may hear that interchangeably being used with early onset severe retinal dystrophy. There isn't an exact time point at which, when you'd call it one or the other, but generally we tend to use labours for um, children who have visual impairment from birth or within a few months of life, whereas early onset severe retinal dystrophy we'd use for children that develop it under the age of five, but possibly not from, from, um, from birth. Uh, but like I said, there is overlap and people will use these terms in different ways. So they're characterized by severe um, vision impairment in early childhood. Um, patients often have nystagmus, so inability to fixate or wandering eye movements. Um, pupils that don't react um, as quickly as, as otherwise. Um, the sign called the oculodigital sign, where children rub their eyes, um, possibly in an attempt to stimulate some kind of uh, phosphines or visual perceptions. And actually that rubbing of their eyes can lead to keratoconus, so an abnormality of the cornea. Um, and so that's something that we look for in clinic as well. Can be associated with early onset cataracts. And again, um, refractive errors is very common in, in childhood onset disease. So these children can have be um, very long-sighted. There are probably about 25 or 26 genes that are associated with this group of conditions, but the top five um, are listed there. So CEP290, um, there's uh, antisense oligonucleotides and, and CRISPR trials ongoing for that, and I'll talk about that in a little while, um, as well as RP65, which has a licensed gene therapy now on the NHS, which I'll go on to mention. So that's kind of the RP, ROD, ROD cone dystrophy kind of group of conditions. So then you move on to those that affect cones or, or um, the cone system first. Um, and these have a, a different uh, cluster of symptoms that manifest initially. So patients are first affected um, by symptoms of central visual loss. So this could be reduced vision, reduced visual acuity. Um, they're often very light sensitive, um, so find it difficult to tolerate sort of bright lights or even ambient light. Difficulty reading, given that the central retina is, is affected and may have color vision difficulties as well. Sometimes these conditions are then progress to um, involve the, the rod system, which is why they're then called rod, cone rod dystrophies, rather than just cone dystrophies, and then you develop the symptoms of peripheral vision loss and night vision difficulties as, as per the RP phenotype. Which genes cause these disorders? They're overall more rare than RP, but can be inherited um, you know, via the three most common modalities, so autosomal dominant, autosomal recessive, and X-linked. 
In terms of autosomal recessive disease, this is ABCA4, is the most common gene, and X-linked RPGR. Uh, autosomal dominant disease is split more widely across uh, a few common genes. So then you move on to the, the third kind of category of conditions, which is macular dystrophy. And these are conditions that predominantly affect the central retina, so the macula, um, which is the part of the retina that we use for seeing faces, reading, fine details, and so on. Um, and so again, these patients present in a similar way to those with cone dystrophy, but um, with reduced visual acuity, sometimes light sensitivity, although it's not quite as much of a feature um, in always, um, and then again, difficulty reading uh, and seeing fine details, often in low contrast environments. So the commonest macular dystrophy by far is Stargardt disease or related to the ABCA4 gene, but there are also um, several other macular dystrophies um, such as Best disease, Exlink retinoschisis, Salisbury's dominant drusen, and pattern dystrophy, including several others. So, um, but they all tend, in terms of symptoms, um, would, would manifest initially in the same way. Sometimes macular dystrophies can be complicated later on by a growth of abnormal blood vessels in the same way that wet macular degeneration happens, and that can be treated with injections. So that component of um, the macular dystrophy, you know, we warn patients that if their vision suddenly drops or if they develop sudden distortion in their vision to seek, um, uh, come to eye casualty or seek, um, ophthalmology help urgently because they may have that slight, that small um, component may be treatable for their condition. So just to highlight Stargardt disease, um, given this is the most common um, macular dystrophy or the most common inherited retinal disease overall. So this is an autosomal recessive condition and um, arises because of a, a, a protein that doesn't function properly within the, the rugs and within the photoreceptors. That protein normally helps us to export toxic waste material from these cells. So if the protein doesn't work properly, you get a buildup of these toxins, and these you see deposited as flecks or um, at the back of the eye and in the retina. And it has a very variable phenotype. So we see children with um, er, you know, early onset disease in children, um, and sometimes there's a second peak in early adulthood, and sometimes patients don't uh, present until their 40s or 50s. And it's usually because of a different genetic change. So children have severe genetic um, or genetic changes that affect the gene function more severely, so that stop it from expressing a protein that we call null mutations, whereas the um, late onset um, group of patients have milder genetic changes, which means they have some functioning protein that gets them um, through to sort of late adulthood without too much of a problem. So I've talked about these progressive um, retinal dystrophies. Just for completeness, really, it's important to be aware that not all inherited retinal disease gets worse. So there is a group of patients, it is much smaller, um, with stationary, or what we call stationary disease, which means it um, doesn't tend to progress uh, from that point of diagnosis. And there are two main groups of that. There's congenital stationary night blindness, where you have a congenital defect in your rods, 
and you have achromatopsia where you have a congenital defect in cones. So achromatopsia, again, people have heard of more recently because of the ongoing gene therapy trials for this condition, both in the UK and in Germany and now in the US. Um, it's an isolated genetic defect in, in the cone system um, and patients present in early childhood with reduced vision, nystagmus and light sensitivity. So you can tell from that cluster of symptoms that that sounds similar to the sort of early onset severe retinal degeneration uh, group of patients. So actually it's really important to um, see these children. We can differentiate the two on the basis of the electrodiagnostic testing often and of course genetic testing. So it's important to see these children and, and give them a diagnosis because it's a much different diagnosis to know that actually you have this vision problem but it's probably going to stay the same versus you have a, a genetic diagnosis or um, an inherited retinal disorder that's going to get worse. Um, and we know that there are sort of six main genes that cause achromatopsia. The top two of those are CNGA3, CNGB3 are the subject of gene therapy trials at the moment. Um, congenital stationary night blindness is, is the flip side of the coin where you have a congenital abnormality in your rods. So these children present with reduced vision, some, usually a little bit later than the achromatopsia children, but with reduced visual acuity. They may be very short-sighted. Some have difficulty seeing in the dark, but it's not in all cases, which is actually quite surprising given that the rods don't work um, fully. Uh, they might have nystagmus or strabismus. And when we look into the retina, apart from seeing changes related to short-sightedness, often the retina actually looks relatively normal. And again, this condition can be diagnosed on the basis of electroretinography, ERG testing, and genetic testing. So we know that there are a number of genes, so number of modes of inheritance, X-linked being one of the most common, um, but can be autosomal recessive or autosomal dominant as well. And so genetic testing will help us to identify that. So again, identify these stationary conditions so we can tell parents that actually we don't think that this, this condition is likely to be progressive um, in this, you know, um, in at least the, the medium term. So there are a number of sources of um, information. Retina UK, of course, is, has a brilliant website with a lot of um, details about these conditions. But uh, there's also the Gene Vision website, which was set up by uh, Maria Musaji, who's a consultant in London, you may know. Who, and there are, uh, there's a whole information page um, for patients as well as specifically for professionals on each of these disorders. So if there's something that you want to look up, if you have a patient in front of you that you're not quite sure, you can, uh, as well as looking at the, the Retina UK website, um, you can get more information from, from this one as well. So I've tried to keep things simple, but um, like I said, there is much more information available on, on all of these disorders. So really then moving on to, to managing our patients, what can we do? What can we do to help them and support them? And I know you've heard a lot already this morning about the different aspects, but I just wanted to summarize from, a, for, um, from what, what we might do in clinic or how we might uh, direct our patients. So as we've discussed already, it's um, really important that patients are referred to a center where they can get more information and discuss options such as genetic testing or genetic counseling. As, um, 
and really just to update you as to where, you know, that things have changed over the last few years and, um, you know, where we are with all of this. So if we think about our genetic code, we have about 20 to 25,000 genes that our DNA encodes. And in the past, what we would do is specific genetic testing. So um, if we saw a patient and it looked like they had Stargardt's or ABCA4, we'd send off a blood sample to just to test for that particular gene because that's really testing anything was difficult and so you'd want to target your approach. Over the last few years, we've had what we call panel testing where certain laboratories have offered testing for the, you know, the genes that we think are most likely to be involved. So for example, Manchester had a, called a panel where they tested 176 genes um, that we know are implicated in inherited retinal diseases. And that gave us a result, um, a genetic testing result, in about 50 to 60% of patients, either because we, you know, and that because we don't know the, the underlying gene and it's not included in that, that panel, it had, might not have been discovered, or the technology we have may not be able to find that genetic change. So over the last few years, we've moved slightly further than that, um, then to what we call whole exome sequencing. And what that means is in every gene, you have a bit that codes the protein called the exon and another bit in between called the intron, which kind of regulates things. And so whole exome sequencing looks at the, the exon, the kind of interesting bit in every single gene in our body. So all kind of, you know, 20,000 genes or so or whatever to try and see if we can pick up a genetic diagnosis in other genes that we wouldn't expect or other areas of the genome that we wouldn't be looking for. And now we've moved to whole genome sequencing, which technically sequences everything. Um, so the exons, the introns for all the genes in our bodies. So since last year, that whole genome sequencing is available on the NHS. Um, so when we see a patient in clinic, we would take a blood sample. Um, they would see someone like Sean for uh, um, consenting for that process and going through all the risks and benefits and how um, that, would, uh, that would help. And then we send the blood to a centralized laboratory. Actually, in practice at the moment, they're not looking at everything because whole genome sequencing generates gigabytes or probably even terabytes of data and someone has to filter all through all of that to try and find the diagnosis. So at the moment, what we're doing is specifying which of these areas we'd like them to look at first um, and then the bioinformaticians will target those areas. So it's, it's not like a, a full blood count where you send off the, the blood and then the machine looks at it and it gives you a result. It, you know, someone needs to go through that data, have a look, analyze it. Um, there are now computer programs that will do that as well. And then some, a, a bioinformatician will validate that and look and see whether that genetic change fits what we know in the literature or if it doesn't, um, whether we think it's uh, um, disease causing or pathogenic or not. So it's quite an involved process from the uh, data science point of view, but we are now moving into whole genome testing. And, and still, like I said, we're actually not looking at everything for every patient. It's much more targeted than that, but the data is out there. So potentially, if a you know, new gene gets discovered in five years time, we could go back to that and um, you know, with that patient's consent, have a look to see if a diagnosis could subsequently be made. 
Um, Unlock Genetics, we've, you've heard about already, but it's got an, a fantastic uh, range of resources about how to refer patients for genetic testing. Um, so please do look at that. Um, and, you know, there's a, a range of information on there. So benefits of genetic testing. We did talk about this briefly already, but um, why should patients have, a, uh, have genetic testing? And as we've said, it's not you know, it, when patients come to clinic, it's something that's offered to them, but no, you know, anyone can refuse it at any point. It's not mandatory. It, you know, patients can go away and think about it. You know, that's a very open discussion. But why do we think that it, it's beneficial? Well, firstly, it helps us establish a genetic diagnosis, which, a genetic diagnosis, which for some patients can give, um, help them understand their disease process or disease condition better. And for us, it helps us to give a better idea of their prognosis, how vision might change over time. Because as we've heard, these conditions are very variable. And by knowing the underlying gene associated with, with the RP, for example, it might help us to work out how things may change. But you know, it's individual to that patient, of course. Um, by knowing the mode of inheritance or the specific genetic change, it may give us a better understanding of how family members may be affected. Um, it can also help family planning if needed, now that we can do pre-implantation genetic testing on the NHS. Um, so if you know patients are, are, are very um, interested or worried about that aspect of things, we can refer patients on to those services for further counselling and advice. And of course, there are now many clinical trials that are ongoing, um, and those all recruit on the basis, or the majority recruit on the basis of having a genetic diagnosis. So by knowing the underlying gene, um, some patients may be eligible to take part in a, in a clinical trial. And there is now one licensed gene therapy for um, one inherited retinal disease. So um, RP65 related disease, which I'll come on to in a moment. Um, as we've mentioned, it's also really important to manage the other eye conditions, um, such as cataract, macular edema, refractive error. Um, and so it's you know, important that their patients are seen, not necessarily by an inherited retinal disease specialist, but by um, an optometrist or an ophthalmologist to look for those things. Um, when patients come to clinic, we can offer to, to register them as visually impaired. Um, they can access low vision clinic uh, services and um, be given advice or support on assistive technology. And I'm sure you're all aware that there's an incredible um, explosion of, these, um, of, of this technology over the last few years. So we've got applications such as Seeing AI, which um, allows you, you know, be my eyes, so work in different ways, but allow you to, um, some uh, be my eyes has a volunteer that helps you to, um, to describe what you're seeing in front of you. Um, you've got things like Zoom text that allows you to enlarge text um, and things like smart glasses, which are um, also being in, developed in research um, outlets. So there's a, a lot of support that could, patients can be directed to, as well as, of course, you know, some patients might not be even using things like iPads or text-to-speech on iPads or, you know, all those sorts of things. So... Um, our low vision services can, can support with that, as I'm sure um, you're involved in. 
um, in terms of children, their educational needs and support in the educational system is really, really crucial to ensure that they can get the maximum out of school and they have the maximum support they need. Um, and something else we would discuss with patients in, in a clinic visit is health and lifestyle. So there actually isn't a huge amount of evidence specifically for RP or inherited retinal diseases. There have been certain trials and papers written over a long period of time. But we know for retinal disease in general, um, smoking is bad. So, for example, in age-related macular degeneration, smoking um, is associated with, with more advanced disease or earlier disease. Um, we'd advise patients to have a healthy, balanced diet, um, so lots of antioxidants, to avoid vitamin A supplements, especially if they have Stargardt's disease, because we know that Stargardt's is involved in in the retinal cycle, the vitamin A cycle at the back of the eye, and overloading that um, with vitamin A supplements can lead to more um, advanced disease and toxic deposits. Uh, and then also to protect their eyes, so to use sunglasses in very on a beautiful day like today, um, to use sunglasses or, or wide-brimmed hat so that they have um, protection from UV light um, damaging their retina. And finally, I'll spend the last few minutes on uh, clinical trials and, and the one treatment that we have. So as you may well be aware, the first gene therapy for an inherited retinal disorder was NICE approved um, in 2019 and is now offered on the NHS in four centres across the UK. So Manchester, Oxford, uh, Great Ormond Street for children and Moorfields in London for adults. And this is a gene therapy for one specific disease due to RP65, um, genetic changes in RP65, um, which tends to be a, a more severe retinal dystrophy. Um, it has a huge associated cost, um, so it's probably around, nobody quite knows what the NHS uh, uh, negotiated with Novartis, but it's probably around sort of 400, you know, it, the, the cost price I think is $400,000 per eye, so it's, you know, huge, um, very expensive, but like I said, it's now being, being given um, in, in our clinics. So that's another reason, especially for um, children, to try and understand genetic testing if they have, or do genetic testing if they have early onset disease to see if they may have this condition. Um, so what is gene therapy? So just to, to highlight, in, in the retina we have our rods and cones, uh, and these uh, degenerate over time in, in patients with inherited retinal disease. So what gene therapy involves is using a virus to, develop a, to deliver a healthy copy of that gene to the retina with the idea that it would stop the cells dying off and maintain the, the cells in that region. So it can either be given under the retina that we call subretinal gene therapy as Luxterna, the, the licensed gene therapy is. And so this needs to be given in the operating theater. It involves an operation a little bit like retinal detachment surgery um, to, to um, detach or remove the gel within the eye, the vitreous, and inject the virus underneath the retina where it's taken up by the, the remaining retinal cells. Gene therapy can also be given um, by intravitreal injection, so like you know, treatments for macular degeneration or diabe uh, diabetic macular edema, so just injected into the cavity of the eye. Um, and that's also in, in clinical trials at the moment. So gene therapy involves delivering a healthy copy of the gene to try and stop 
these cells dying off. But gene therapy has its limitations. So the, the genes delivered by a virus, a, a virus that doesn't cause disease, but that virus can't carry every gene. It's quite small, and some of these genes are very big, and so you literally physically can't fit them in these viruses to um, deliver gene therapy. So there are other approaches that have been developed over the last few years to, um, to try and uh, address these problems. Sorry, I missed out the slide. This is a, a summary of gene therapy trials for um, inherited retinal disease that have either currently ongoing or have um, completed recruitment around the world. So you can see that there's a, a number of different clinical trials that are, that are ongoing. So, yeah, this is what I meant to go on to. So the antisense oligonucleotides, this is another approach that is being trialed at the moment. So this is um, currently in clinical trials for uh, a form of uh, Labour's congenital amaurosis caused by the CEP290 gene. And so what happens in normally is we have our genes, as I mentioned, you have exons and introns. The, when the gene is expressed, those, the middle bits, the introns get removed. You just get your exons uh, left that form your RNA, and then that is expressed as a protein. However, sometimes that process can go wrong, and some, the bits that should be cut out, the introns or bits of the introns are left in, and that means that the protein doesn't work properly and the photoreceptors are, um, accumulate toxic material and then are damaged. So what these drugs do help, they help to revert back to the process that should happen to stop the abnormal introns being incorporated and the, the normal process um, from, to go back to having the normal process again. Um, and this is now uh, in two clinical, there are two ongoing clinical trials, as I mentioned, one's for CEP290 and the others for patients with USH2A with a specific genetic change in exon 13. So we're waiting to hear data, um, the serious trials currently recruiting, so we're waiting to hear um, what the outcomes of that will be. Gene editing is another big area, which is very complicated, but essentially involves cutting out the bit of faulty DNA and repairing it um, in, the, in the cell itself. And I'm only just going to, I know I'm running out of time, but just going to say that there is one clinical trial ongoing for a CRISPR or gene editing for um, a form of RP due to CEP290 again. Um, that's run by Allergan, and they've reported some primary data which shows uh, safety, so the drug was well tolerated in the, the eyes that were injected, and some, um, they haven't specified what, but some visual outcome um, improvements in, in a few patients. So again, we're waiting to hear data from that. And there are also various trials of oral medications. So for Stargardt's disease in particular, there are at least four different forms of oral therapies that are in clinical trials to see if you can at some point modify this abnormality in the visual cycle and stop this buildup of toxic materials. So um, people are approaching these problems from multiple dimensions to see if we can um, try and stop degenerations. But some of our patients already have very advanced retinal degeneration, so the photoreceptors may have already gone, and then there's no point or there's no advantage in reintroducing a healthy copy of the gene or trying to correct that genetic defect if the rods and cones aren't there. So another approach is optogenetics, so to try and introduce a light-sensitive protein into the remaining retinal cells and see if you can restore vision in patients who already have advanced vision loss. 
and there are currently four clinical trials ongoing around the world um, using those approaches to see if they can um, restore vision, either using gene therapy alone or in combination with what we call a visual prosthesis, so um, a pair of glasses that stimulates those proteins in the appropriate way. So that's my whistle-stop tour of um, the, the landscape of inherited retinal diseases. I've hopefully um, tried to sort of explain that, you know, that it is complicated in terms of how we classify these disorders. We do this sometimes by description, looking at their function or their genetic diagnosis, and all of that provides complementary information to build up a picture of how these disorders affect our patients. Um, please do make sure patients are referred to centres where there's a team that exper is experienced in these conditions to be able to provide as much support as possible and genetic testing if those patients should so wish. And one thing to say is now with whole genome sequencing, that genetic testing can actually be done at their local hospital as well. Um, so the blood can be taken anywhere potentially and sent off, uh, but we would you know, advocate that they are plugged into the genetic counselling system where they can get um, uh, expert support. And as I've highlighted, the management of our patients is, is multifaceted. It involves all the professionals in this room and online to try and, um, you know, augment every aspect that we possibly can to try and minimise the impact um, of these diseases for our patients. Thank you. got a, a couple of online questions um so um well firstly we've got a comment sound that says thank you that was an amazing session so thank you i'd agree with that um but secondly um we've got a professional who's also living with rp themselves who said i had always been under the impression that vitamin a is good for protecting your retina and i've been taking vitamin a supplements um, for many years based on a harvard university yeah. study conversely i had thought that vitamin e was harmful um can you comment on that at all yeah, um, so basically there was a paper written about 20 years ago, exactly that one from Harvard, which in RP patients showed um, some benefit in taking vitamin A in terms of um, leading to potentially milder disease. Nobody's ever been able to repeat that. So um, that's a, you know, it, it was a, a, a well done trial, um, but one, it's not been replicated, and two, the outcomes they used were things like visual fields and electrodiagnostic testing, which is quite variable. So now it's difficult to know how to interpret that paper 20 years on with the advances in genetic testing and um, imaging and so on. So we tend not to advocate actively taking vitamin A based on that paper alone. Um, for Stargardt's patients, it's, you know, we would advocate them to not take vitamin A quite actively. Um, with RP, it, it's difficult because that's the only paper that's, that's out there. So, so, that, so that advice is, um, you know, is, is no longer actively given. Is there anything about vitamin E? So again, that paper um, also looked at vitamin, vitamin E 
again, we wouldn't normally advise any, you know, any supplementation. Um, so just have a normal, healthy, balanced diet, and then you would probably get enough uh, of the vitamins that you that you require. Um, I've got another question from online, if nobody else has a question at the moment. Um, are you aware of any recent research or research at all on the CNGB1 gene? Um, I believe it's fairly rare. Um, so I can't remember the, uh, the, the data off the top of my head, but that's something I could get back to them. Okay, yeah, thank you. Hi, that was a great presentation. It's Davinda from RNIB. Um, from a technology standpoint, 2019, we had a great presentation from uh, Google, DeepMind, talking about you know, OCT and AI doing the complementary work as with clinicians. Now, AI is a bit of a toddler, and expectations in the room always managed. In terms of the modeling, you mentioned with upstream of genetics and the, what's happening. Does AI and the work happening lead on to modeling kind of therapies and does it add value in terms of how much these treatments can be modelled and could add impacts? Yeah, so there's a lot of AI work going on actually in inherited retinal disease at the moment. So um, I personally know there's a programme at UCL, Institute of Ophthalmology, led by Nicholas Pontikos, looking at AI in terms of um, giving, looking at images to give a genetic, how that would help give a genetic diagnosis. Um, so, you know, um, uh, access to genetic testing is is not as wide as we'd want it to be. So if you could make a genetic diagnosis from a picture in itself, would you know that would that be better and less and you know more accessible worldwide potentially? So so people are looking at AI from that perspective, but also the next step would then be to try and exactly as you said, model these diseases to see how they progress over time. Because if you have thousands and thousands of retinal scans, that would be more informative than an individual clinician trying to assimilate that data and, and predict. Um, and given these conditions are very variable, then you know having um, AI, if, if we can have AI algorithms to do that, that would be incredibly helpful. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Martin Carney. I'm a rehab worker from Newcastle. Um, it was a very interesting presentation. All I wish to know is, would it be possible to have a copy of your presentation, please? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> right, so I got RP with tunnel vision, and is there anything out there to cure, or if anyone's got RP, is there anything working out there at the minute for curing it or operating it? So, um, in terms of clinical trials, it's partly dependent on the underlying genetic diagnosis. So it, it depends on which, uh, you know, gene is affected uh, as to which, if, if there are any trials that you could be eligible for. The only licensed treatment, like I said, is for RP65 um, related retinopathy. Uh, in terms of reversing visual loss, like I said, there are some trials ongoing in terms of the optogenetic approach so to try and make the remaining retinolite sensitive uh, people have in the past have tried retinal implants to do a similar sort of thing um, and then there's also stem cell work that's um, currently ongoing but uh, there was a clinical trial of stem cells which i think at the moment is, is halted but there are you know there are ongoing research programs but 
the, only, the main thing in, in the clinical domain for advanced disease at the moment is the optogenetic gene therapy. But again, they're all clinical trials rather than uh, approved treatments. So at this point, it's really trying to understand safety and whether there's a, a, a signal of um, improvement. And then that would then need to go on to broader trials to try and take things further. Thank you, Sam. It always seems to me how incredible um, that Sam and colleagues like Sam find something that's so complex and so deep and manage to put it into language that's not only understandable but incredibly interesting. So thanks so much, Sam. That was absolutely brilliant. <laughs> so I'm not going to hold you for too much longer. I just want to do a very, very quick thank you to all of our presenters and panellists today our volunteers, our exhibitors, our sponsors, and the organizational staff team back at the office that have put this together to us today. I think they've done an amazing job, um, especially doing hybrid for the first time, the first time face-to-face. -face. It's been really fantastic. So a huge thank you from me. I really appreciate all of your time and effort and all of you getting here. I mean, you know, I, I see every day that the, the railways are struggling and I really appreciate it. Um, Matt's looking slightly nervous because it looks like I've forgotten to do the two things he asked. Only two things. Please, can we put our lanyards back in the box? And please, can we fill in our feedback forms? Um, your feedback is so, so important to us. Getting it right, moving forward and making sure that you have the best day possible when you come and spend it with us at Retina UK. So I'm not going to hold you any longer because the sun is shining. And I'm sure that you all want to get back home for a nice glass of something cold. So thank you ever so much for today. It's been absolutely amazing. And it's been absolutely fantastic to see you all. Thank you ever so much.